Saturday night and I'm feeling kind of sporty. Went to the bar, caught me a 40. Got kind of high and uh, kind of drunk, so I kicked the ass of this little punk. Forgot my key, it had to ring my bell. My mama came down, she said, who the hell? Wait, mama, wait, it's me, your little son. Before I knew it, my mom pulled the gun. I know who you are, but who the hell is that? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am your host, Jim Laskowski, and this month, we're getting a little scary, though I'm not sure if this is a filmmaker I'd automatically categorize as a horror director, but let's face it. He's made some films that are rather horrific and have some disturbing content. Joining me down the dark alleyway on the streets of New York is one of my favorite creatures to talk movies with. He's an accomplished podcaster, writer, commentator, a true blue cinephile. Welcome back to the show, the host of Supporting Characters, Mr. Bill Ackerman. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to talk Abel Ferrara with you. And he's somebody that I didn't know if I would be excited to talk about because my earlier experiences with his films were not, I didn't dislike the movies I seen of his, but I wasn't over the moon. I almost felt like he's, he's been praised so heavily by guys like Tarantino or something. And I was just kind of, maybe my expectations were really high going into stuff like, um, King of New York, especially, mm-hmm. but, uh, this is this is a hell of a director. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm now a fan. Oh, good. I wouldn't go out of my way to say like he's in my favorite directors of all time list yet, <laughs> but I am grateful for having binged on close to ten titles, if not ten titles. You know, I don't have a list in front of me of everything that I watched for this, but I I watched pretty much every credit he has on IMDb and one credit that's not on IMDb, except for the Miami Vice and Crime Story stuff. That's the only time I didn't have time, but uh, I've seen uh, a lot in preparation for this. And it's interesting to watch when you deep dive, you get a real sense of just how, you know, vast, uh, you know, uh, his filmography really is. I I mean, I I knew that he had a lot of documentaries, but I I never really did the deep dive into like his music videos before or Mm. short films and it's it's a really remarkable career. It gave, I mean, I already kind of went into it as a fan, but it gave me even like further respect for him. Yeah. And you did this all the while going to the New York Film Festival, which we'll get to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, envious of your ability to uh, binge on just about everything. Which is great. Uh, it's exhausting, but yeah, it's fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's definitely fun. I just I just know that I, I I experience some sort of like similar to what happens in the addiction, uh, just like an existential crisis sometimes. Watching too many movies and going, is this really what I'm going to do with my time? Is this is this is this ex- exactly how what's going to be fulfilling in the long run? What does this all mean? You know, and uh, I mean, it's, I get joy out of it. It's not like it's a chore, mm-hmm. but. There are the, just these moments of, and it can happen even at a day job. It can happen in a relationship. It can happen in any instance when you've gone through a lot, maybe emotionally, especially like everybody has in the past year and year and a half. But sometimes I do go, who am I to criticize movies? <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm just a guy. I haven't made a, like a, I'm, I've made silly movies and home movies and things, but I've never sat down with a crew and done what these people do. So I should just, just, to, in, you know, who am I to criticize David Gordon green for Halloween kills? You know, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel bad doing that. Like I, I just didn't enjoy it. 
And, you know, if other people do, that's fine. Yes, some do and some don't. I I kind of agree with you that it doesn't really work, but it's not, you know, uh, it's not uninteresting, but yeah, I don't think it works. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, mean, certainly like, uh, who am I to criticize? I mean, I'm coming into this, like, you know, having you know, read much more articulate champions of Abel Ferrara's films than myself, you know, I mean, someone like Brad Stevens is somebody that anyone listening to this should familiarize themselves with his book, Moral Vision, or, um, you know, my friend Chris O'Neill, you know, has written on on Ferrara and this, you know, people like Kent Jones and Adrian Martin have, you know, there's a lot of great writing that you can find on the work of Ferrara. I mean, we're just approaching it as film fans. And I'm looking forward to actually just hearing your thoughts on some of these, because I know, like we talked before, how you were... Uh, not necessarily the biggest fan of films like Miss 45 and King of New York earlier on. Um, so I, I'm excited to talk about this filmography with you. And I do get a, a better perspective when I do watch a lot of his work in a row, which kind of bumped up um, Tommaso. Is that how you say it? Tommaso? Yeah. Tommaso. Yeah. Tommaso. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that. It, it's, you know, I watched it when it was high up on your list. Was it last year? I think it was. Uh, wasn't it? Yeah, it was last year. It, it, I think it like might have done festivals in 2019, but it, it it was a 2020 release here theatrically. It made a little bit more sense and had a little bit more weight behind it after watching a lot of his films. It's kind of why I saved it for last because I thought like, oh, well, this kind of reframes it a little different, <clears throat> a little differently now yeah, for me. Yeah. Uh, and you know that holds true for a lot of his latter films. Uh, I only saw a few of those, not too much. But, you know, he's also someone that would be impossible to talk about every one of his works in one episode, but the essentials will be discussed, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it, I found myself getting a little overwhelmed trying to, like, think of what to say about, like, all of them, because I watched all of them, and I, I you know, we're going to skim over some more than others, but uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do my best, at least, to put it in context. Oh, you always do great, so I'm not worried. <laughs> but, I, I again, like, I've been going through that... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It could be just a, a general depression of some kind where it's kind of like, uh, I, I should really be doing other things to work on myself instead of binging on a bunch of movies or watching, uh, midnight mass, uh, the new Mike Flanagan <laughs> Netflix sh- miniseries, which turned out to be pretty, pretty special. Um, and a great thing to watch this month. Yeah, well, binging Abel for our movies isn't really always going to be the recipe to get out of a depression. I mean, but it depends on which <laughs> depends on which ones you watch, I guess. But uh, yeah, no, yeah, definitely, yeah. there's definitely a lot of uh, turmoil and struggle in his filmography, <laughs> which I th- which I think really helped in a way because it's similar to when you listen to like Nine Inch Nails or The Cure when you're in high school, where it's kind of like, oh, I'm not alone you know, and and what I struggle with and feel, I'm not like a sociopath or a psychopath, but there are just elements of like, Oh God, why is life this insane? (laughs) And you relate to some of the things that the characters go through or what they say, or even, uh, you know, Lily Taylor's addiction in the addiction, uh, (laughs) as you know, people can, you know, easily say, uh, I've been drinking too much and I should really, uh, uh, you know, stop and reflect and figure out why I'm doing that. But that's a movie we'll talk about later in the show. Mm-hmm. You know the drill. I I, I want to keep things moving and get to the pre-show entertainment. Uh, I said you know the drill. Mm. <laughs> drill driller killer. <laughs> I, uh, I get th- it. There we go. Very good. <laughs> um, why not talk about something cool that you've seen recently for the What We Watched segment?
um, you know, it's funny because I, I saw 23 films at the New York Film Festival and I was trying to think what to talk about. I think you're going to actually bring up one of the ones that I saw, but um, the one I chose uh, is, uh, well, Ryusuke Hamaguchi is, I think is how you say it. I've, I've never actually had to say it until I've been now. hearing a lot. Of, I've been hearing this name a lot lately and he's, I, I guess he has two films out and about right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had seen Happy Hour, uh, which was this five and a half hour uh, drama about these four women. And uh, that really blew me away the year that I saw that. And then he did uh, a film called Osako 1 and 2, which was, I think, probably my favorite narrative film of that year. Um, Was that like three Uh years ago? And then uh, he had two films at the festival. And I think the one that's going to get the most attention is uh, a film called Drive My Car, which is a um, an adaptation of a Har- uh, Haruki uh, Murakami uh, novel. Ah, um, yes. Okay. Uh, uh, about a widower, you know, directing a production of Uncle Vanya and um, his kind of uh, various relationships with the collaborators and the young uh, woman who's employed to drive him around during this, uh, you know, this production. That's really amazing. But my favorite of the festival was... Uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, his other film in the festival. Um, and this is uh, three self-contained stories, um, romantic stories. Um, like One is a, a love triangle. One is a uh, another relationship story, more uh, about a plan to deceive someone, a kind of an act of revenge. And then the third is, I don't want to spoil too much, but just like the unlikely account of a reunion between old classmates. And there's nothing very... I mean, they're attractively shot uh, stories, but they're not like overtly like the style is not really the thing that uh, makes these work. It's just, you know, the each story unfolds in this kind of measured, unhurried manner. And it's like uh, just about performances and strong writing. Um, So I could see it kind of getting overshadowed by the, uh, you know, the the Murakami adaptation, which is a little bit more of an epic this is just a really mm. solid engrossing series of stories and it's a little bit more subtle, but um, I thought it was just, it just knocked me out. Um, and I saw a lot of great films at the festival, but for some reason, this one uh, has stuck with me the most. And it's just, you know, scenes that are given room to breathe for long stretches of time. I mean, happy hour, the, the five and a half hour one, I mean, has scenes that go on for a long time. Like it's not like a lot of, like it's not like one of those epics like Lord of the Rings or something where it's like uh, a large canvas. Like it, it's 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 a miniature kind of setting, but it's just like scenes are allowed to play out for a very long uh, stretch of time. And I feel like that's something that uh, you see in Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which I guess just opened this weekend in New York. It might have opened in other uh, cities as well. I don't think it's streaming, but um, I'd say to keep an eye out for this one because I could see it getting overshadowed. I mean, I saw some things like the French Dispatch that were also really good, but you know, you're going to hear about them. Um, you might not always uh, hear people talking about uh, this one, so that's why I thought I'd mention it. Oh my gosh! I think it's actually. I want to say it might be playing the Chicago International Film Festival, and it might be one of those that you can watch virtually. And if it is, I might just have to do that because uh, yeah, there's there. I think there were. Th- three titles I was considering uh, and that was possibly one of them I want to say but the others were um, the new Celine Sciamma film and uh, something Mama. The, yeah yeah something called the worst person in the world which is amazing and oh, that man. you're gonna love that yeah I have a feeling about that one I watched the trailer and I'm like hmm 
this looks like a gym film. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's I th- I could see that making. I, I don't know if it's going to be your top film of the year because I think you might have already seen that, but I I think it'll be up there for you. Um, I think everything I saw, uh, you know, the Lost Daughter, uh, the Souvenir Part Two, Parallel Mothers, uh, uh, Unclenching the Fists, Vortex, Benedetta, Futura, uh, the Girl in the Spider, The Power of the Dog. Um, Come on, come on, Red Rocket. Like pretty much everything I saw, I would recommend uh, to people. I think the one I wasn't crazy about was this science fiction movie that is on HBO right now. But everything else I saw was really good. <laughs> yeah, I. That's funny. Like that, that, uh, that, that little film from a director I love. I'm not that excited to see, though. Again, I, I know people who love the source material. And worship at the altar of all things Dune. Yeah, yeah. People, people went nuts for it at the screening I saw. Like, I don't want to dissuade. If people are excited to see it, you might love it. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. All right. Well, good to know. I, I, you know, again, like you just rattled off a lot of titles that I am excited to see as the fall continues here, and certainly there will be award contenders and things that I will likely have access to in the future. So <laughs> that's, that's what's also hard about keeping the podcast uh, going and why maybe around November or even December, I will likely choose directors with smaller <laughs> filmographies possibly. Uh, well, I mean the, the next one's already set in stone, I think with um, Sarah Polly, hmm. who all three films I have strong feelings about and certainly uh, listening to her talk on a podcast about uh, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, uh, that really got me you know, interested in talking about her as a filmmaker. So there's going to be a lot to discuss on that episode, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with all these 2021 titles that are not directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. So <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. I lot. think like every, every year, like... Uh, yeah, it's funny. You hear sometimes people say, "Oh, it's a good year for a year, a uh, good year for a film, or a bad year for a film." Um, for in my experience, like every year uh, is a good year for film. Like it just sometimes you have to dig a little further, you know, to find the gems. But I don't know if, if what I saw at the festival is any indication. There's a lot of stuff that's really strong getting released this year. And maybe it's because like certain things like the French dispatch, or if you like Dune, you know, Dune, you know, we're just sitting on the shelf through 2020 because of the pandemic, but it just seems like you have a lot of uh, choices this year to see some really remarkable stuff. Um, great year for uh, uh, films directed by women too, incidentally. I mean, between Joanna Hogg's uh, souvenir part two or uh, uh, the lost daughter, the, um, the Maggie Gyllenhaal film or, um, uh, we're, I think you're going to talk about one from one of my favorite directors, Mia Hansen Love. But there's wow, um, there's been a way few. to go! That's yeah. what you call a segue. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, was- so yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this one. Yeah, well, and, and I was going to say Titan also is you know divisive, but uh, you know definitely you know I, I think a remarkable you know achievement as well. I think so. That's a uh, that's up there in the top five right now of the year. <laughs> I was pretty impressed by that one. There's, yeah, I had a couple of experiences with new films recently that made me go, okay, I'm, I'm still in love with movies, clearly. That was one of them. And uh, another was called Dim Land, which, uh, again, I, I'm not going to talk about it at length here. I, I'm more or less inclined to 
right about that one, I think, because uh, had a lot of th- had a lot of weird thoughts about it, and most of them to be very very glowing and positive. But uh, it's it's just an interesting experience that I'm more or less I want to discipline myself to write uh, some some actual. Uh, sentences as opposed to ramble on about it, but I'm excited to ramble on about Bergman Island mm. by Mia Hansen love, which is a film about a writer named Chris played by Vicky creeps. I want to say it's creeps or creps. I, <laughs> I, I should probably find out since I'm such a huge fan of hers now. Um, yeah. But she's uh, her character is working out her next screenplay all the while kind of being a little unsure about the marriage that she's in I, I, it's it's interesting because there's not like a, a direct like, oh, this they're clearly not connecting. But at the same time, there's just something in the air. There's like maybe some anxieties going on, maybe just because he's already successful as a filmmaker and kind of renowned. Uh, and she's still struggling maybe to find her voice, which is really interesting. I. Uh, not to jump way ahead in our episode, but I thought a little bit of Tommaso uh, w- watching this because it is this really kind of personal and reflective story that <laughs> becomes a little meta in a way. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if she's gone on record to say like, oh, this is definitely about me and my relationship with um, Olivia. Olivia Asias. Asias. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who Tim Roth in this movie could potentially be playing. Uh, But at the same time, it's surrounded by the, the ghost of Bergman because they're on this Island where he essentially uh, settled down and wrote a lot of his work and made a lot of his films uh, there. It's off. It's, it's, it's in Sweden, right? I forgot the name of the Island of Pharaoh, I think. Ah, Pharaoh. That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it, it has them, traveling to this island and there's a festival celebrating Ingmar Bergman who uh like I said filmed a lot of his most notable works there and uh, uh Tony played by Tim Roth is kind of again more a successful filmmaker a little bit more self-assured there's a scene early on of her like kind of struggling to get her ideas down while her husband has this notebook that's practically half full already full of uh, it's like sketches and drawings and initial uh, outlines of maybe what his next project could be. And uh, I think it's interesting if you uh, watch this again, uh, look at, look at the, the contents of that notebook, because I think they're hinting at things to come, but as they're advancing with their screenplays, like fiction and reality kind of start to merge a little bit. There's uh, she's developing this story where we're introduced to these other characters played. Um, Amy is played by Mia Wasikowska and Joseph is played by Anders Danielson lie. And in a way they are mirroring her relationship and her feelings in ways that kind of become a little more direct, more or less. And yet it's kind of ambiguous. I couldn't help but think of a little kind of like Hong Sang Su since there's like this little playful deconstruction and blurring of lines when it comes to reflecting what the artist is going through versus like the story that's being presented to us. (laughs) So I I often like think, well, every movie is personal. Every movie is coming from 
the artist's, uh, you know, emotional state at the time, their environment, you know, certainly what they've gone through in the past, all these things just sort of coalesce to tell some kind of story. And this is not something like adaptation, you know, where it's like uh, you literally experience the struggle of a writer and that writer is literally named the screenwriter who's writing the story. But, uh, you know, I, I really got involved in this film in, in a way that maybe because part of me is still, it's more of like in the background of my life, but part of me is still like this aspiring screenwriter who wishes he could sit down and sort of map out all my ideas and turn them into something and actually make a, a, even if it's just a short film. So I, I sort of identified with Chris's struggle creatively and also feeling like a little intimidated by not just the fact that someone like Ingmar Bergman made amazing films. How do you, measure up to that like i think at one point um tim ross character says to her well nobody's expecting you to make persona (laughs) (laughs) you know and yeah yeah, i I, like sometimes when i watch a movie i'm like well there's just no way i i can measure up to that so i'm not going to sit down and actually try to write something so that's probably why this affected me a little bit more just that overall process of trying to you know just capture your ideas in a way that feels true and genuine while at the same time i feel this movie is very true and genuine to you know uh, mia hansen love as a storyteller even though i've only seen one other one other of her films and that was things to come didn't you also see um uh father of my children Maybe I don't. Oh, right. I did see that. I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did see yeah. that. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, but yeah. Um, you've seen all of her films. Have, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure you're a fan of this one as well, because it does feel like, I don't know if it's a summation of her themes and ideas, but at the same time, I think it's just a really uh, charming and personal story about understanding the creative influences and the way we let them shape us and into the stories that we want to tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't sit down and really try to gather my thoughts on this one. I saw it as one of 23 films that I saw in like two and a half weeks. Um, But I went into it as, you know, as a fan. Like, I mean, I I think I was as predisposed to loving this as the audience for Dune was to, you know, predisposed to loving that, I think, when I saw that. But like, uh, yeah, for me, I mean, she's as consistent as any director working now. I mean, every one of her films I really, I think is tremendous Um, from All is Forgiven up through this one. And I think I was a little nervous because it was her first, you know, almost entirely English language film. And I just thought like, well, how is that going to change? Is that going to make it feel, um, you know, a little awkward? Cause I thought like sometimes when foreign language directors, like, you know, uh, make their first English language film, it can, it can feel a little stilted to me. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, but this was, this felt right of a piece with all of her other films. Like I, I, I didn't even feel the, the change, you know, um, and uh, no, I thought I thought it was completely uh, involving. Um, I love all the uh, the film within a film kind of uh, stuff with Mia Wasikowska. Um, yeah, and I thought, uh, yeah, it just her films are so funny because they always feel like they're building towards melodrama and then just kind of coolly step away from it. Like they never really get into the history histrionics that you think it's building towards. It just you know, so I it, I can see why they might be a little bit too, uh, 
intellectual or like detached maybe to like work the same way as like a film with like a good like soap operatic like emotional explosion like there's none of that in any of her films i'm um, even the ones that are dealing with divorce or uh you know, rave culture or like, you know, bad breakups. Like it's doesn't like she doesn't, or even, even uh suicide, like they aren't really like, I mean, even the most melodramatic uh, scenarios. I mean, they, they, they're coolly measured about those kind of situations. Um, but I don't know. I think uh, I'm excited, you know, that uh, more people could potentially see this one. Cause her last film, Maya never really came out in America. Like I saw it at a festival and then I, I think it might have just shown in New York as part of a retrospective, but I'm not sure what happened to it. Um, you know, and we're well, going to be talking wild. about it. We're going to be talking about a director who's got several films that just fall into limbo. Uh, so I know how that can happen, even with like major directors with m- movie stars and then such in the cast. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you on on Bergman Island being one that uh, everyone should check out. Yeah, I. It's interesting that you mentioned the films that I've seen, they are kind of like unassuming and reserved and there isn't, yeah, like an explosion of emotion that you would expect or even just like, Oh man, we're going to, we're going to really hash things out. It's going to turn into the seasons of a marriage. And like, they sort of comment in that in this movie, like, you know, uh, she's watching one of Bergman's films and she's even saying, man, this is just too heavy. And I, I appreciate it as a work of art. And yet at the same time, it's, it's funny, like her, her film doesn't, doesn't become a Bergman movie. And just because you have this preconceived notion of maybe this is going to be super meta and turn into something that Bergman would do, that's not the case. And I think I found that to be a pleasant surprise. Yeah. You know, um, there was, when, when the French new wave directors first uh, emerged on the scene, you know, people like Truffaut would like assail the earlier generation uh, directors for like making, I'm, I'm trying to think the exact way he put it, but like, like, like cinema of quality, like these very polite middle brow kind of productions that didn't have the exuberance and energy and danger of the kind of films that were exciting the young Turks of that Kaya de Cinema, you know, crowd. Um, they were like, in, you know, and I think that they just thought like, um, you know, the st- stuff is too safe, safe and stuffy. And I think that sometimes there's a certain strain of French filmmaking that might be a little bit too uh, restrained, restrained and, um, you know, I'm not, not trying to think what the word is like, maybe not, not austere, but just, you know, they're about like uh, like middle class French characters, and it might be maybe too provincial to cross over, or like you know, they don't have like the edge of like the French extreme kind of filmmakers. Like since I mentioned Titan, like they don't feel like uh, they are uh, as as shocking or as uh, like outrageous as like some uh, you know like Leos Carax kind of characters that are like a little bit madcap. Um, Mia Hansen Love, and to some extent Livia Asias as well. Like they kind of fall into a certain kind of uh, kind of more restrained French cinema that, you know, uh, I don't know that you see as much of it anymore, you know, um, that uh, that used to be kind of a mainstay like of art houses in, like in the eighties and maybe early nineties. I think even some of the Koslowski films kind of fall into that. Um, the the yeah. you, you Polish director, but something like red, like things that are just classy, you know, highbrow entertainment, but nothing too, nothing too wild or provocative. So, I have friends that like think of Mia Hansen loves films as, you know, you know, nice, polite films, but I, I kind of go for that. You know, like I, I, there's a place for films like that. I, I feel like even America doesn't really produce that many films like this anymore. Um, so 
I don't know. I, I mean, it's, I, I never can tell like what people are going to respond to with this, but you know, Mia Hansen love is one of those directors. that's like, because she's maybe cause she's a woman, like, you know, you see those like directed by Mia Hansen love t-shirts on people. Uh, so maybe this will be her crossover. I, 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 she makes an interesting contrast to someone like Sofia Coppola, as far as like, she, she lives in this like privilege kind of like movie royalty world, you know, because of her, you know, partnership with uh, Olivia Asia. So because she's been an international auteur herself for years now, um, you know, and it, you know, her films kind of reflect that maybe privileged kind of point of view. Um, but I don't think that's uninteresting as cinema. Um, yeah. It's been done before, but I, I, I still found it compelling. And again, not, unsure but i i would imagine this is a a story that's coming from her own personal experience to some degree i would think yeah yeah and you know you could put it alongside the souvenir which is um yeah you know, that's a good one yeah which i you know i was on my mind because i saw the very good sequel to it yeah so it's it's you know another self-reflexive um female auteur kind of self-examination film, uh, but completely different, you know, I mean, they both, you know, are such films of those filmmakers as far as their own distinctive voices. But um, no, I mean, I, it's one of my favorites of the year so far. And uh, yeah, no, I was really, uh, n- I mean, not surprised because she's never made a film I didn't love, but um, you know, I hopefully maybe the English language and the fact that, you know, recognizable American, you know, recognizable to uh, American audiences uh, stars, you know, maybe more people will see this than, even something like Things to Come, which I guess is her most popular film so far because of Isabelle Huppert being, um, you know, a pretty famous uh, lead um, and also the same year as Elle. But, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a lot nicer. I, I, like that <laughs> I, I like that one, too, a lot, actually. So, yeah. Is Eden still your favorite? I think so, but okay, I, I mean, but next. but I love Goodbye First Love, and I think that that's the mm. one that I would recommend to you more than Eden, because um, okay. Eden, Eden, I love, but Eden, like I think I said on our you know, seven-hour podcast about our favorite films, I think you know it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a more surface level and and maybe shallow film than some of her other films, but I I, I love Eden uh, as, but uh, you know, uh, Goodbye First Love was what kind of made me a fan, and then. Uh, everything has been so good. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, um, some of her earlier work, like uh, All Is Forgiven, will finally come out in America. Because I, I think even the French DVD that I have for that is kind of hard to find. So I don't, I don't get why her distribution is so uh, spotty still. But I guess that's kind of how it works for like uh, non-genre films. Because I mean, mm. you know, if she was making horror films, we'd have it on a on a Blu-ray <laughs> from Arrow or something. But um, yeah, no. Yeah, speaking of which. Mm. uh i (laughs) was there's uh i i've yet to pick up a lot of the uh arrow titles recently but uh certainly there's a couple if if not more than just a couple that have been released from this director that we're going to talk about and he's Mm -hmm. the director of the episode mr abel ferrara or ferrara ferrara okay i love doing this whole Hmm. How do we pronounce this person's name thing? That should just be like a, a drinking game on Directors Club.
there's a line in the addiction that I keep going back to when thinking about this director. At one point, Lily Taylor's vampire character says, self-revelation is annihilation of self. <laughs> and I just think of the philosophy, like that, that whole film, it almost reminded me of like, is this like waking life with how, how much people are talking existential philosophy pretty much every time they open their mouths. <laughs> and I know she's yeah. a philosophy student, so that makes sense. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's kind of an outlier in that regard because there's, it's so driven by deep thoughts and heavy dialogue and uh, these characters reflecting on what it all means. But, you know, his, his films started out very differently we could say. Yeah, well, before we even get to that, I just was curious, what was your origin with Abel Farrar? Do you remember the first thing you saw and what your initial impressions were going into this episode? Well, the first one I saw was definitely his Body Snatchers film because really? Okay. I really loved the original and then the remake. And I, I sort of, I, I want to say I might even watch it on HBO when we had a cheater box uh for cable Mm -hmm. and it it just sort of came on and you know i watched it around the same time i was the you know the age of the lead character i think it's gabriel anwar is uh is the lead in that Mm -hmm. and um it, it really creeped me out i i i'm definitely not in the same league as uh praising it the way ebert did i don't think it's a four star masterpiece that has scary moments that are uh, up there with the exorcist, which is kind of like calm down Ebert. Well, I've <laughs> but, got something to say about that, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that was definitely my first Ferrara film. And you know, that was like when I was, you know, just watching horror movies and watching whatever I could find on cable, uh, not knowing anything about who this director was. And then, you know, certainly later on, just because I kept hearing things about, uh, Bad Lieutenant and King of New York. I'm pretty sure I just rented those on VHS. And uh, I definitely, I, uh, <laughs> those, those kind of wore me out in a good way when I first saw them. And I, I, I almost just like likened him to, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say a lesser version than Scorsese, but just, you know, at the time I, I, I was a little dismissive of him and didn't feel the need to like explore his entire filmography like I would with somebody like Scorsese. So, but that was early on. That was even probably yeah. before I saw Pulp Fiction or around the same time I saw Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Well, I mean, those films all do come before Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. Cause that's 94. And I think uh, his, his, you know, you're, the period you're talking about is like 93. Um, so you could have seen them right before. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think I saw, I'm trying to remember if I saw Miss 45 or Bad Lieutenant first. I mean, they, they, they felt like such different things to me because one, I sought out because of Danny Perry's cult movies too, um, Miss 45. Sure. And then Bad Lieutenant, I think, was a pretty substantial – I mean, it didn't make a lot of money, but it felt like a very talked about substantial independent film for 1992. And it was also one of those earliest NC-17 films – and it was it was Harvey Keitel coming off of Reservoir Dogs, uh, so it was like kind of a, a Keitel resurgence in that early '90s, and the piano was also around then. Um, so I think I saw that because it was, you know, a talked about serious film of the moment. I remember since we mentioned Ebert, I think Ebert was so uh, 
so moved by Bad Lieutenant that I think that definitely informs his uh, reaction to Body Snatchers. Maybe he gets a little carried away just as a way of like, sometimes he gets swept up in a film and then it bleeds over into the other reviews that he does for that director. Um, but like, uh, I think, I think in the nineties, I got a sense of him as kind of this wild man character because of his, like a Conan O'Brien appearance and the Driller Killer audio commentary, the first one where he's, I think he might be on <laughs> heroin or something when he's doing it. It's hard to tell. Um, but you get a sense of him as this kind of thug poet <laughs> because on the one hand, he was the kind of person that like, you know, would speak kind of philosophically in interviews, but he also was the kind of person that appeared to be like, he was the kind of person that would wear sunglasses at night, like in inside, <laughs> Like he was always like, you know, had this kind of, you know, image uh, that was like uh, Mr. You know, Mr. Cool kind of kind of director, but like in a self-conscious way, like it was the bravado of um, of hip hop or like certain kind of, uh, you know, would be serious artists. But like his films are almost always rooted in genre, which made him like kind of an unusual character. I mean, as far as like crime and horror type films, but he was coming at it from maybe a more self-consciously sophisticated uh, sensibility. I think that that's why critics latched onto him early on because he was this kind of, you know, noble savage kind of character for them. I mean, as far as like somebody that uh, really felt like he would shoot his mouth off without any kind of uh, warning, you know, and I think that this is always kind of made no, him. This guy has no filter. No, <laughs> no, he, he really does not. And I think, I mean, he, you could compare him to, I mean, you could compare him to Brando or to Dylan or to Lou Reed as much as to Scorsese or Peckinpah or Cassavetes or Samuel Fuller, like other directors. Like he's, he's a, he's a larger than life kind of character. And I think that that's kind of like, he's the, like him as a guy is like a big source of the cult surrounding him as much as the work. Um, You know, this kind of street talking New York hustler that somehow (laughs) is still alive and still making like multiple films a year, even though he feels like somebody that should have died long ago because of the drugs and because of the hard living. Oh, yeah. I I thought of uh, I thought of Keith Richards. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned Keith Richards because like he made a film about Keith Richards in the 70s, like as a like as a uh, like, I guess, like maybe protesting his like recent drug bust or something like that. But like he he is like the Keith Richards of film. Um, like somebody that just seems like, you know, unkillable. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think that when I was first getting, you know, familiar with his work, I think as the films become more art house, I couldn't tell how much of it was deliberate and how much of it was the drugs. I mean, I say that like in a way that like, I, I see now that he is, you know, making deliberate choices, but like, you know, I couldn't tell when things became more and more obscure in the films that kind of follow maybe the funeral. Like when he stops working with Nicholas St. John, who we should talk about, but mm-hmm. when he stops yeah. doing the screenplays of Nicholas St. John and starts becoming more overtly uh, identified with the screenwriting, the films become even hazier and like a lot more um, like uh, less cuts, more dissolves. <laughs> Like they become like a little bit <laughs> woozy or like, like they become like, uh, like half remembered hangover dreams sometimes. I mean, that not like, always. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't see new Rose hotel, but that was my impression of that. New Rose hotel is like that. The blackout is kind of like that. Um, you know, and even, you know, but it, 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 it feels like 
an extension of like, like he always felt like somebody, like you look at a film like Dangerous Game, which was completely attacked at the time, partly because of Madonna, no, mainly because of Madonna. But I, <laughs> I, I feel like you couldn't, I don't, I don't know how you could ever release that through a Hollywood studio and not expect to get roasted because it's like super obscure and personal filmmaking done like for a major Hollywood studio. Uh, but it kind of creates the impression that to make a Ferrara film is to live a Ferrara film. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. that like that the, the sexuality and the drug use and the late nights of, of just hedonism, like that, world that he depicts in the films that's the world outside the films that he lives in and whether or not that's accurate or just the mythology and myth making of an artist i mean that was something that was always very hard to separate when it came to abel ferrar like it felt like like he was living those films when he wasn't actually shooting them in a way that like someone like martin scorsese um always had that distance like martin scorsese felt like somebody that was like watching michael powell films you know? <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know had asthma as a kid and was like you know he would make films like goodfellas but he wasn't actually in the streets doing it ferrara always felt like he was out doing it <laughs> like yeah, that was the like, like a like a like a method actor you know like someone like val kilmer would yeah. just completely like immerse himself into the world of his character to where he just like i am this character and you must refer to me as this character and I, I get that impression from Abel Ferrara is like, I have to completely live inside this story. And they all, and, and it's just, it comes out in these really dangerous ways at times that you feel uneasy watching something like dangerous game. But I, I, he should be, he should be in conversation with guys like, uh, like, like Scorsese and Paul Schrader. And not just because they work with similar actors, but they all depict New York at a time when it was very different. I also yeah. thought of, uh, Larry Cohen and his mm. earlier films because they were shot in this like verite style without permits or letting the crowds know that they were filming a scene. Because I think I, in Bad Lieutenant, you can actually see like a, a New York cab driver look into and wave at the camera at one yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they blur the line with documentary in a way that Scorsese really didn't do. And I think I think the um I mean, certainly the uh, the foregrounding of religious and spiritual themes. I mean, ties him to Schrader and Scorsese, especially the Catholic oh, sure. stuff. Oh, but yeah. I mean, yeah, he is kind of like that missing link between the New York exploitation guys like Bill Lustig and Larry Cohen, and um, uh, it's a guy that made um, uh, Basket Case and Frank oh, and Hooker, Hen- Hen- Frank Hennenlauter. Like yeah. between guys like that um, coming from that exploitation, even porno world, and then people like Scorsese and Lumet and people that, you know, were doing these New York crime stories. And I think that Ferrara is so interesting because he he starts off in the gutter, gets way slick under the tutelage of people like Michael Mann and becomes kind of like flashy and then sheds it once he has the, the power to shed it and becomes like deliberately messier around the edges again. And the way I thought of um, someone like Jess Franco, who started off like making these like well-composed professional movies but as he went further along he was less interested in like the the visual prettiness and more just like into the the raw reality of the scenes and like kind of blurring those lines and they become maybe slightly more amateurish looking films at times but you know as a as a design like it's somebody that knows how to make a king of new york but Bad Lieutenant is what he wants to do now that he has the clout, you know, and Bad Lieutenant, you know, and, and not to say that Bad Lieutenant is is 
you know, amateurish at all, technically, but it's just, it's, it's more rough around the edges and feels like it's being lived in the streets. Whereas something like, um, you know, well, like his more, uh, you know, polished crime films like China Girl or King of New York, they, they feel a little bit more composed because they also have more time to get the shots. I mean, he has more money and he has to eventually start working with less and less money. Um, but you know, he, being the hustler that he is, he, he still scrapes together these budgets somehow and continues cranking them out like several times a year. It feels like, uh, his yeah. documentaries well, or features. Yeah. He lives next door, I think to Willem Dafoe, uh, in, in Italy or yes. something. And that that's like, Hey, let's just go make it this movie. And, you know, even going all the way back to bad Lieutenant, he, uh, he didn't, he, he, he wanted everything to feel spontaneous and in the moment and raw in ways that I think are similar to just improvisation and creating things on the spot, similar to, you know, someone maybe like Cassavetes, but also just, you know, just kind of going with the moment because like his script for bad Lieutenant was like 60 pages long and not even, you know, fully realized. It was more of like a, like a collaboration between him and Keitel and certainly Zoe, Zoe Lund, right? Zoe, yeah, Zoe Tamerlis, Zoe Lund, um, yeah, the uh, the lead actress from um, Miss Forty Five, and the and the co writer of uh, a Bad Lieutenant, yeah, and who an actress in Bad Lieutenant as well, yeah, um, and that was one of the only films that Nicholas St. John didn't do in that run of films for uh, yeah, that's for Ferrara. Uh, like he couldn't relate to that um, spiritual uncertainty because he was certain, um, you know, but that's that's a thing. When we talk about, I, yeah, I feel like going back to the um, conversations we've had about people like David Cronenberg, or like even the conversation I had with Patrick about Wong Kar Wai, um, you know, you have to keep his collaboration collaborators in in mind when when considering the body of work because so many of them come certainly the the classic Ferrara period you know is all Nicholas St. John screenplays they almost all have Joe Delia soundtracks they almost like there's only a handful of cameramen that are defining the looks of them um so there's there's consistency behind the camera beyond Ferrara himself um that kind of gives them a cohesiveness and beyond the fact that he's you know at a certain point working with a you know a handful of his leading guys like first the, the relationship with walk and and then Keitel and and defoe you know is, of course is like now become over time the the major collaborator uh, as far in front in front of the camera um but you know that maybe that relationship with nicholas st john and nicholas st john i think had tried to get other projects with other directors going but as far as i know the only things he's ever written were abel ferrara films um, but he feels like the other half, I mean, you know, as far as like, uh, those themes, like, you know, you, since you mentioned the philosophical angle of the addiction, like that feels so like coming from that guy from, from St. John. Yeah. Well, he, he was, uh, he was a devout Catholic and that's why a lot of the, a lot of that imagery shows up throughout several of the, of, of his films, but he didn't want to work with Ferrara, Ferrara <laughs> on uh, bad Lieutenant because, you know, there was blasphemous imagery or even just the central uh, attack is something that didn't sit well with him. So I think that's why he bowed out for, for yeah. that particular film. But, you know, early on, he uh, started out. Um, I, I, I did not see his adult film. <laughs> I've seen I, it. I, it's- I'm sure it's it's funny that because you, you, you sent me a link for. um a couple of documentaries and he told that story in the, the Mulberry street documentary <laughs> about how he, 
<laughs> about how the the actors he hired, I guess, couldn't get it up for a particular sex scene, so he yeah, stepped yeah. in. Yeah, I remember when I first got into Ferrara, like the whole notion of nine lads of a wet pussy. I felt like an urban legend. Like it wasn't out even clear in the first book on Ferrara if it was an Abel Ferrara film, but it was like something you could get through video search of Miami, I think. Like and I remember the descriptions like see Abel fucking <laughs> was like was like in uh in the in the in the in the pitch for it as something I read. But I was just kinda like, Yeah, like what what could it be? But um and even now, like the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, they don't I don't think they're allowed to say Abel Ferrara's name anywhere on the packaging. Uh, even oh, wow. though they like strongly imply it. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's it's and, you know unusually pastoral for an Abel Ferrara film. Like there's a lot of stuff set in the country. I mean, it's you know one of those huh. stories that's like you know um, the a, a thin plot like connecting a series of uh, sexual encounters. I mean, it doesn't really. I wouldn't say it breaks the mold on on the kind of storytelling you know you'd see in adult films. I mean, but uh, there is a a, uh, a sexual assault scene set on the New York streets at night that feels kind of like a. Uh, a harbinger of things to come with miss 45 and things like that but um it's it's worthwhile for completists and i know that there are people that have some smarter things to say about it than i could say i mean it's it's interesting as a curio but i i wouldn't say it's like major ferrara if you're uh trying to fill out what are the key films to see yeah and uh the driller killer is interesting and it's not one we can we don't we don't necessarily have to talk about it at length but what a weird mess like and in a good way and in a really compelling and interesting way because there's all these like random uh, sequences with just the band practicing yeah. <laughs> or and I'm just kind of like what does this have to well I I mean I guess it's probably gonna lead up to something but it's this sort of like weird coming of age artist slasher <laughs> it's like a big amalgam of different things that I think was going through his mind and in his head at the time it's a video it was considered a video nasty and mm-hmm. you know these uh this this band of artists and, and this one one particular artist who decides to make murder kind of a, an art in of itself but uh you know we, we sort of watch him ultimately destroy himself but also find a lot of catharsis in uh killing with a drill yeah, I mean, there was a whole wave of um, films that were associated with the no wave kind of music culture of the, mm. you know, uh, New York in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think that Ferrara never really gets grouped in with them. I think, um, you know, um, Amos Poe and people like that, like Jim Jarmusch, I guess, would be the most famous person associated with that before you get to like you know, oh, figures okay. like Nick Nick Zed and like people like that. But like Ferrara, I, I, to me, that feels like, the no wave slasher movie. And I think that no wave films have a lot of talk, a lot of meandering, a lot of people in like cheap apartments, <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, and I think that driller killer as a horror movie is too slow and talky to really completely satisfy the exploitation movie crowd. I think that people that sure. rented it for a text chainsaw massacre type film were a little bit discouraged with it, but it's not, uninteresting as a Abel Ferrara film, especially because it's the one film that he, um, you know, uh, is the lead actor in, uh, under the, uh, the Jimmy Lane, uh, pseudonym. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, I mean, there was a whole mini cycle of exploitation films with psycho killers as the main characters around that time, like maniac and don't go in the house and fade to black. Um, even earlier ones like the headless eyes, but like, um, you know, driller killer kind of sits alongside those kind of sits alongside, 
um, you know, the no wave independent films that coming out of New York and, you know, a lot of talk, not a lot of drilling, you know, for a long time, a lot too much, you know, dissonant rock music probably for the average viewer. But, um, one thing I was going to say is that, uh, there's a couple of themes you see carry over through, um, you know, many of the films, whether, you know, in the earlier films, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you have a fair amount of revenge or uh, kind of uh, people kind of taking power through violent means. And then after a while, you get a lot of stories about basically apologizing to people for the, you know, horrible behavior you had, you know, um, you know, but uh, the, the thing, I think Kim Newman was the one that said the driller killer was like the first psycho movie that was like about money that like, you know, it was financial pressure, mm-hmm. not sexual pressure that drives him on the murder spree. And it's like, that's something that you see carry over through a lot of the Ferrara films is the money issues, you know, whether it be something like fear city or go, go tales where it's like, you know, there's like a, 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 an enterprise in jeopardy or bad Lieutenant needs money for the bets or uh, Frank yeah. white needs money for the hospitals or, you know, uh, even just, you know, our Xmas trying to get the, the, uh, the ransom money. Like there's always kind of like the need for money, even something like Mulberry street, the documentary, you know, there's a lot about like trying to get the money, trying to be the hustler, trying to work out the deals, you know, that is part of being that kind of artist. Um, you know, so driller killer, you know, at least in that theme kind of resonates with the more sophisticated uh, films that come later. Uh, so it, it definitely has its place. And it, it, I mean, as far as like a dirty old New York film, it's got a lot of great location and uh, location footage. And uh, it, it kind of sets the stage for, you know, the much more accomplished Miss 45. But, um, you know, it's definitely the, the uh, arrow uh, Blu-ray of that, I mean, has a lot of material that puts it in context that, you know, if you're even a casual fan of that film, if you don't already have that, it's, you know, you'll you'll only get further uh, appreciation for it in that release. Yeah, I, I I'd be curious to watch some of it. It's in it's one it's 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 in that category of maybe it gets too raw, too nasty. Uh, <laughs> maybe uh, just I'm not saying every film has to be pleasant to watch. You know, obviously, but there's just mm, I don't know. It's it's one of those that maybe I'll watch it again in a few years and have a a different reaction to, which is the case for. Ms. 45 because i think i saw it a few years ago and maybe i just wasn't in the right frame of mind for it at the time still struggling i think i i want to say it might have been for the larry cohen episode where i brought up with patrick and the guests this weird feeling and it's it's still a conflicting feeling that i get with revenge movies in general and i remember just like instead of doing a specific movie at the time uh, I, I probably watched a couple of films that involve people going after, I think I may have even talked to, briefly about watching um, James Wan's death sentence for that episode mm. and how I just death wish stuff and all these things, like all this scenario always makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think that's part of the intention, <laughs> but you know, it's like, even with something like last house on the left, a film I don't appreciate as much as you do. There is something about the thrill and the, like my heart racing and the joy quote unquote in quotes, joy that I get out of watching uh, people go after the bad guys in a way that, you know, isn't necessarily satisfying. It's not like, okay, I've, I've gotten revenge. Now I feel better. That's rarely the case. 
Yeah. But well, I enjoy watching it happen for obvious reasons, I guess, because these are the bad people. They've done this horrible thing. So clearly it's, you know, uh, this, this method of uh, vicarious thrill that I get out of watching people enact violence on other people. Yeah, and it's funny because I I was thinking about vigilante justice just this weekend with seeing Halloween Kills, which is you know mm-hmm. you know has the vigilante theme and that, but you know undercuts it by basically the message being that you know vigilantes can't stop you know this kind of threat and it's all pointless and they all die. Spoiler yeah. alert! <laughs> but uh, um, but you know the um, the vigilante theme. I mean, you know, you look at, you since you mentioned Last Us Left. I mean, that's that's a film that. Uh, depending on how you read the ending um, vigilante uh, revenge, you know, justice does not actually uh, solve the problem. It it doesn't, it doesn't erase the grief and tragedy of what happened to the parents in that film. Um, You know, so it kind of undercuts it um, same way that the Hills have eyes does. Wes Craven was fond of doing that, but um, you know, something like miss 45, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's such a great hook because it really is as simple as repulsion meets death wish. You know, I mean, it's the victimized yeah, yeah. woman as, as merciless killer. And you do feel good about the initial people that, you know, she's killing because she starts off killing the kind of guys that you hate. I mean, and, and, yeah. and but everybody in that <laughs> everybody in that city is so imposing. I mean, you know, between the photographers or even like the landlady, like everybody is just in her business all the time. <laughs> I know all those people just drive me would drive me insane. Like I can walk around the streets of Chicago and thankfully not get, you know, harassed. And I feel so awful that this still happens, that women still get whistled at or harassed. And, you know, I think that that all automatically just fuels this anger that, that, you know, men are this way and to actually see them get killed in the manner that they get killed and this is is satisfying to experience, but then you get to that party, and it sort of subverts that. It sort of creates this. Well, well okay, this is. I mean, it's almost again self like self destruction is inevitable, and you're not going to feel the kind of um, uh, resolution because you're still going to live with that trauma of what happened. And I know the argument for some reviews of the film is that it's almost too implausible that she would be raped twice in one day which is really hard to it's hard to watch and it's and and, you know it's awful and it's you know it's not meant to make you feel good in any way that this is happening but at the same time i don't find that to be manipulative and yeah you know it's clearly it's just what happens and between between this and I spit on your grave, it's not nearly the endurance test oh. as far as the assault mm. scenes. I mean, you yeah. know, it's it it's pretty merciful as far as such things go. Even I would say, Dangerous Game has more uh, uh, tough to watch kind of depictions of sexual assault. I mean, it's it's Miss Forty Five really doesn't linger on that stuff, even though it doesn't. I mean, it it actually it shows it, but it's not. Um, it's not what the movie is, you know, selling you. It's selling you the the revenge of the character. Um, yeah, no. And yeah. I was thinking this time of of uh, <laughs> for some reason I was thinking of Valerie Solanas, the uh, the woman that oh, shot Andy Warhol. You know, speaking of Lily Taylor, yes, you know, it's kind of like Valerie Solanas as Charles Bronson vigilante. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, it's I think if as far as like that kind of grindhouse exploitation film goes, I mean, it's. I mean, it's a contender for the best <laughs> film in that category, you know, uh, 
I think for a lot of people, it's for, it, could, it could be Ferrara's best film. I mean, it's the one that is the least, uh, you know, arty and uh, searching. Like it, it, it kind of is a, an efficient thrill machine. I mean, you know, even the and it and it has such well realized. Uh, characters. It has such a great use of New York as a location. I mean, it really feels almost like a bombed out war zone that they live in in times and other no places. Kidding, yeah. But then something like the Halloween party shows like he has total control over the imagery and the and the and the mood and, and the and the look of it. I mean, the look of Athena as the as the avenging character. I mean, it's such an iconic uh, looking character that um, I mean, Miss Forty Five might be the most. I mean, among my friends, I think that is probably the the one that almost everybody uh, loves the most. I mean, I, I my friend Alexander Helen Nicholas read a great monograph on it. Um, I think that you know people downloading this are more familiar with that one than maybe some of the more obscure later films. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's I think a, a classic at this point. Spoiler alert! It's my favorite now. Um, <laughs> I, because the first time I saw this, I felt like a lot of the kills were kind of. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't say underwhelming, maybe a little repetitive. And the ending sequence, the, the slow-mo was like rolling my eyes. And then there's a certain phallic imagery thing with the knife mm-hmm. that I, I didn't think too much of that at the time. And now it's sort of just all clicked into place for me. Uh, that kind of highlights the, the futility of revenge. And yet there's this primal need to follow through on that impulse because you don't know how, to process the trauma that you've been through. It's not like she's going to go to a therapist, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's just the, it, it's, it's so unfortunate. It's so, it became really sad for me in, in a way that brought to mind. It's a very different movie, but what Angela Bettis does in uh, May, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that film is more about loneliness and isolation, but she sort of transforms at one point in that film to sort of get what she wants and, uh, you know, uh, Thana just becomes this female Avenger, not just for herself, but for women in general, I think. Uh, but at the same time, it's not going to solve the, you know, the macro level issue of the way men are. I mean, just God, I like just the way those the, the early on in the film, you know, the, these are just women going home from work and they're being leered at. They're being talked to in these horrible, horrible ways uh, that I, you know, again, watching that just play out in of itself is, is really, you know, that's probably at the top of my list of things that really piss me off in the world, just watching that happen. And the fact that like, if I was in that position, I would, I might break down and punch a punch, punch somebody in the face, you know? Uh, Yeah. And I'm not a violent person, but that's that's kind of what gets to me. So, and then ultimately, what what happens, I think, is uh, is really sad and and really powerful. And you know, you could you could make the argument that maybe the last image is kind of a compromise, uh, but I don't mind that. I don't mind that yeah. choice to have the dog live. You know, <laughs> I mean, this time around, I thought of Carrie also. I mean, and Carrie, the revenge mm. is is so much like it, it really kind of all comes at the very end. I mean, where's this? Yeah, I mean, that's true. Gives you more. I mean, it gives you it gives you what you want from that kind of film. I mean, like all the things that don't work about Driller Killer are gone. Like all the all the flab and fat are gone. Like it's just this lean thing that you know. I mean, it's a short film, um, but it's it's just so efficient at, at delivering like a rich 
text to to piece over, but you know it, it works for the Forty Second Street audience that it was made for as well. Like it's satisfying as a grindhouse film, but also as something of substance. Um, yeah, I, that that scene where like you know the 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 cat calling kind of men, I thought of uh, you know La Ventura and the um, you know the way that women can't walk down the street without men just imposing themselves and like you know yeah. uh, just taken further. I don't know if that was an influence or not. And Ferrar was a big you know fan of people like Pasolini, so it's possible he was a fan of Antonioni as well. I mean, but it's a, such a different. I mean, and both of them use uh, cities in such a great way to express their themes. But um, now it's. I mean, it's. You know, I, I know that um, Quentin Tarantino talks about King of New York at length on a podcast and you know, mentions Miss 45 being almost like an impossible high watermark to, to top. I'm not sure that he ever really tops it, but it's interesting to see the different ways he goes despite is despite that, like, you know, hard to top like level he sets like so early on in his career. Yeah. And, and again, it's not a movie about this sort of like justified comeuppance that's you know, glorified in any way, it really presents this sort of mental collapse of a deeply traumatized woman. Uh, and I, I, and a lot of, a lot of Ferrara's films are focused on men, you know, and certainly their, their self-destruction. <laughs> so I, again, I find this film to be a, a little bit more refreshing and um, uh, Zoe Lund's performance is pretty great, you know, for, for being mute, you know, uh, mm-hmm. she, she does a lot with, with body language and her face and just a performance that really, uh, stands out in a lot of ways throughout all the films that I've watched. Uh, I like what Scott Tobias wrote about this, uh, you know, with, he says, uh, the mute Thana speaks through a gun, which is also the language of exploitation movies. And that, that, that makes sense, you know, and this is one of the stronger ones that I've, I've ever seen that tackles that, uh, that theme. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't know if I have much more to add on it that, uh, we haven't already said, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's one of the great films of the eighties. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, in between the next film that we will focus on, he made a couple of films I think are pretty good. Uh, interesting. I'm not sure if I have a whole lot to say. That's probably why I didn't really like make an emphasis that, Oh yeah, we definitely should talk about fear city and China girl. Uh, but you know, they're, I, I enjoyed watching them. I, 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 you know, he, again, he knows how to shoot New York so beautifully at times that like, I'm just kind of in awe of that aspect alone, even if the stories themselves aren't strong or in the case of China girl, I just didn't find the central romance or even the acting from the leads to be that great. Um, no, no, I love China girl, but I, I think that, yeah, I agree that the, the leads, uh, aren't, aren't the most expressive of actors, but it's not, I think with China girl, it, so just, just so we touch on what these are, I mean, Fear City yeah, yeah. is like another New York serial killer movie, but now we're in the shoes of the characters that are being impacted by the killer more. I mean, so it's like a case where there's a serial killer attacking uh, go-go dancers or, or strippers. And like I said, it's, it's, um, it's impacting the business that Tom Berenger, the main character, has been trying to get off the ground, um, you know, because right. his his dancers are being targeted by this maniac, and then they have such an uneasy relationship with the police who don't like them. Um, Billy D. Williams plays the you know the head uh, police officer, so it's like there's this tension, and it kind of almost foreshadows the tensions in um, something like The King of New York, where you're, you know, you're kind of 
more with the unsavory element of New York as your main heroes and the cops are kind of, you know, they're more flawed, angry kind of characters. No I kidding. Mean, Especially not, Billy D. Williams in that one. Oh, Lord. Yeah. I mean, they're not quite the bad lieutenant yet, but I mean, it, it, it's a view of the police that are just as uh, in their own way, yeah, as corrupt or unsavory as the um, the people that they're kind of uh, putting pressure on. Um, so it's interesting thematically. It, I, it's an awkward, not awkward, but like it's, it's like him kind of rising in the ranks out of the grindhouses of Miss 45 and Driller Killer towards the kind of um, slightly more respectable mid-budget crime action type fare that would have been, you know, big on video in the 80s and, you know, pointing him towards things like Miami Vice and, uh, you know, uh, eventually the things like King of New York. Um, so it's it's a solid little B movie. If you were watching it alongside other crime thrillers, you know, of the early 80s, I mean, it would probably stand out more i mean put aside the other able ferrara films of this period it it, it feels like a, a a lesser work but um it's it, it's enjoyable enough in china girl um you know is a is kind of a romeo and juliet west side story-ish kind of tale of uh you know yeah. you know a young a young guy from little italy you know falling in love with a uh, young girl from chinatown and um their their relationship you know kind of flies in the face of this like intense tension between these two neighborhoods and the people that live there. Um, but again, it's like, you know, themes of money and like how the moneyed interests don't want this conflict because it's bad for business. <laughs> so like the working, you know, the blue collar types, they don't have that kind of, like they, they, uh, you know, the racial tension or the, the territoriality of their neighborhoods. Like there's just this, uh, um, this conflict that I think the film spends a lot more time on that than developing the romance. I mean, the romance is almost secondary, even though it's kind of front and center and how right. it's sold. I, it's maybe, really that's what disapp- that, maybe that's what disappointed me about it a little bit. Yeah. I wanted to get more caught up in the characters. It's really more of a bait and switch because it kind of, it promises this romance and it's really not about that. Um, I mean, it, it's not quite as extreme as like Jungle Fever, where it's like it seems to be about romance, but it's also about crack. <laughs> you know, like this is like you know a romance on some level, but it's also a um, you know more about the economics and how moneyed interests are like uh, involved in these kind of conflicts and turf wars. And I think it's I think it's enjoyable. Like I don't I I, I do kind of like China Girl. It was but maybe the nicest surprise of what once I've revisited in more recent years. I mean, having seen it on videotape i got a blu-ray of it from france and it's like oh this is actually quite attractive looking film oh yeah but- the, the the location photography that i mean just uh the cinematographer i forgot his name is it is it bojan Mazzelli? yeah that's it yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's pretty incredible i mean what watching this film i was just like it, it looks great even if i'm not like caught up in the drama of everything that's taken place I, 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 again, I like the ideas more than the overall effect and execution of everything. Uh, and yeah, and, and that was, that was true of fear city. Fear city was a little bit like, it was a weird movie to watch with my mom. Uh, but also it was just like, even she had to comment at certain points, there's a lot of lingering shots of naked women <laughs> just sort of, and I know it's yeah. that world. And then, you know, the erotic thriller is of that time period, especially, 
would do that. So, well, I would say that lingering on naked women is something that Ferrara does for most of his films. You're and right. That's something yeah. that you find even in things like Tommaso or, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about this while watching the blackout, which is one you haven't seen, but I mean, you've seen things, you've seen enough Ferrara to know that I think of him sometimes as somebody that has, like the way he handles sexuality sometimes feels like the cross between like an Adrian line erotic thriller and like a Motley Crue video. Like it's really, it's, you know, it's slightly tacky in your face, like sexuality in such a way that it's, it's, it's I wouldn't say it's parody because it feels like it's sincere, but it's just, it's, re- it's real in your face. Um, and unab- yeah, to, you know. to a degree that makes me a little uncomfortable and certainly like even just hearing snippets of him talk uh, during the King of New York commentary, the way he oogles women is a little gross. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> the driller killer commentary from the, uh, the DVD is, is, is notorious. Cause I mean, he's looking at old girlfriends and just kind of, you almost hear him uh, salivating. It's, 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 it's pretty, unrestrained carnal kind of thing for him with the, with the women. I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of directors kind of disguise that through, (laughs) through, uh, through talk, but I mean, Ferrara is really unabashed about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that does make something like fear city feel. I mean, some of that is also uh, just the requirements of the genre, but I think that film is actually shot to be even sexier than we got. Cause I think they cut the sex scenes out of fear city. Um, yeah, that's the thing too. Is that the uh, the version that I, I I believe I saw on Amazon Prime? I think was really weird in that at times it would suddenly cut to VHS quality, like it went from HD to VHS quality because maybe there were certain scenes that's the only version they had of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's an R rated and an unrated, but then I'm saying that there's also scenes that never made either cut. Right. Um, but yeah, no, and there's actually a few for our films that have uh, notably different cuts between the um, Bad Lieutenant being one and Welcome to New York being the other big one. Um, oh yeah, I read about that one. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the longer ones that I didn't get to, but I. I'm curious about it, especially it's, it's funny. Like even as I got to like maybe 10 titles, there were still like maybe, I don't know, a half dozen or so that was like, I wish I had time to watch these. They sound interesting enough. And like even something, I I don't know where I came across that. Like, Oh, new Rose hotel is one of his essential films. And I, I really hadn't heard that from anywhere else. So that's kind of why I didn't make that a priority. I didn't think that at the time I've come around on new Rose hotel. But, um, but we'll get to that. But I mean, yeah, it, it is a case where, um, yeah, I, I would, I'll, I'll just say as an aside, I don't think he has any film that isn't worth your time. Like, I think that every single film of his filmography, I mean, negligible with nine lives of wet pussy, but like of things that are <laughs> directed by Abel <laughs> Ferrara, you know, and not, you know, under pseudonyms, I'd say that every single film is worth your time, um, which I wouldn't say that about every director. Um, you know, or even most directors I like, but uh, I would say that of Ferrara. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I thought about this as an aside also with Bojan Bazelli, the DP on China Girl, because you know what uh, he shot later on that I know you love is The Rapture. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's yeah. where I, I thought, you know what? That's funny because uh, I probably mentioned that in my uh, r- available running commentary over at patreon.com uh, slash yeah. director. 
So. Yeah, he shot uh, King of New York, Body Snatchers, and China Girl with Ferrara, and then you know he did Deep Cover and. Uh, oh, another yeah. Okay, well there we go. That's a nice transition. Yeah. Because uh, holy cow, Lawrence Fishburne and King of New York. Uh, wow, what a performance! But also, I what the heck was my? I don't know. My brain is weird. That's all, <laughs> like that's the only conclusion I can make is that uh, I saw this like maybe six or seven years ago and went. Eh, it was all right, <laughs> but now, uh, uh-uh. uh, I'm. I wouldn't say I'm on, you know, Tarantino's wavelength of calling this like an absolute all-time, you know, top twenty classic in the gangster genre. But I, I really loved it way more on a second viewing. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I I really love King of New York. I mean, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's the most accessible film in his career. I think Definitely. it's it's got such a great ensemble i mean of everybody you know delivering really compelling uh performances i mean it's one of my favorite christopher walken performances it's my favorite use of david caruso in a movie i mean uh lawrence fishburne is fantastic in it i mean i wish there was more for steve buscemi to do and even james lawrence from the frankenhooker <laughs> i don't think he has any lines in it <laughs> but um but yeah no I, I think that this one is probably one of the most discussed you know for our films since i don't know even though Kinsari is one of his most famous, I don't know what quite to add about it other than that. It's, um, you know, one of his most beautiful and quote unquote professional looking films. I mean, it's, it's the film that like feels like it should have been a hit. I mean, that's the one that I think took him out of exploitation movies, even though it's a crime film. I mean, that, that played the New York film festival and, and kind of scandalized the audience. And it's hard to imagine that film scandalizing people now, especially considering some of Ferrara's other films, like this being a controversial film seems a little bit bewildering to me other than, um, you know, films that glamorize drug dealers like Scarface or whatever, like are always going to be a little bit controversial, but, uh, you know, I think, I think people forget that this film could even arouse that kind of reaction just because it's, it's so beloved, especially, uh, you know, in the home video era and Blu-ray era, I think it might be, I mean, it didn't get the same crazy reception that Bad Lieutenant got at the time, but I think it's probably Ferrara's most popular film and, and probably Walken's most popular lead performance. Um, I would think this overshadows the dead zone. And uh, You're you know, probably I'm, right. Yeah, I, I, but it's interesting watching this movie now because – uh, I I must have – I don't know. How, again, I might, it might have been something I came across on cable, but uh, when I saw New Jack City – Mm-hmm. I was I was kind of <laughs> I loved I, I loved the soundtrack I loved just about everything about that movie at the time I think watching it fairly recently I was like oh it's it's good but not a masterpiece but when I was younger I was kind of like damn this movie kind of rules you know uh, but now I feel like why, was the world not ready for King of New York because I think New Jack City came out a year later. Uh, you know, a very no, different I, Wesley I think, Snipes performance. I think it came out that year. Didn't it come oh, really? out that year? You know what? You're absolutely right. You're right. Yeah, because New Jack City arrives right before Boys in the Hood. And I think that the one, yes. two punch okay. of those, and then you next thing you know, you have a mini wave of films that are dealing with like, uh, you know, inner city youth and crime, you know, straight out of Brooklyn, Juice, Menace Society, you know, et cetera. I think if King of New York had... Wesley Snipes or Lawrence Fishburne as the King of New York, that could have been, um, that could have made a difference. I mean, as, as, as iconic as Walken is, I mean, it's one of his great performances, but I think, I think they underestimated the audience desire for a black crime epic. 
And I think that that mm. could have actually been a bigger film had they had they trusted that. I mean, it, it it's one of the first to really, uh, yeah, push hip hop as a in, in as in a crime film that I can think of. I mean, I mean, because uh, hip hop in film prior to that was really kind of more like. Um, you know things like Beat Street or Breakin' or you know either tackling the b-boy culture, Crush <laughs> yeah. Group. You know things that like they didn't they didn't really play up that uh, associated with criminality because I mean even things like NWA were like still kind of newish and extremely controversial. So I don't know. I mean, had they pushed it being a black film with a Schooly D kind of soundtrack? I mean. I don't know if they would have been ahead of the curve of a, of a, what became a really big trend. I mean, as it is, it's kind of like this imposing gangster picture, you know, at the same period of you, of things like Goodfellas, which, you know, were made on a much bigger scale and got a lot more attention at the time. Um, yeah. Like this one, I think that it didn't really open as wide as it could have. Um, I mean, it, it, it opened doors for Ferrara, but, from what I understand, it was not an easy thing to get made. And um, what did he, he walked away from something that became kind of big because he finally got the money to do King of New York and had to do it. I think it might, it might've been Carlito's way. It was something that, well, like you, we came famous in its own yeah. right. Um, I forget which one, but. Uh, That's interesting to think about. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, De Palma's another, but I mean, it, it feels like a predecessor to things we'd see way later on, like the wire. You know, where it's like this juxtaposition of corrupt cops again, and yet part of you is rooting for the bad guys and the gangsters because they, they're a little cooler, you know? Um, yeah. But it's, I think what struck me a little bit more this time, and it's something that, you know, I, I guess I should have picked up on, on a first viewing is just Frank White is this white man <laughs> running <laughs> the streets and has, you know, a, 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 an army of young black guys that he's essentially controlling, but also really, you know, friendly with. It's not like, you know, I don't know if he's necessarily outright using them, but there's <laughs> he's kind of just recruiting them because he, he knows that uh, they can form an alliance. Yeah. Well, he's also embracing them in a racist kind of crime world. Whereas, like, you know, the yeah. Italian gangs would, be, you know, be, you know, uh, discriminatory towards. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, so he's kind of a progressive character as well as a drug dealer villain character. I mean, he's 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 more likable than the police that are trying to stop him from getting the money to build a hospital. I mean, this is, what, you know, the complicated morality of Kingdom of New York. Um, yeah, yeah no. that's that, that's again, that's that's predates something like the wire or the shield or even breaking bad where it's kind of like, Oh, there's a lot of gray areas here and in a really interesting way. And you know, like, like not to be dismissive and saying like, Oh, he's this conservative Republican nightmare and he's out there running the streets like a sociopath. But he also has like these Robin hood kind of good intentions. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, 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 the last thing that I watched in preparation for this was a documentary that he made on, um, is it Pier Paolo, the uh, the uh, the priest that was like uh, that built the uh, uh, Padre Pio? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Padre- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, that's coming out. I thought that was coming out later. Or well, maybe he's, he's making. 
making another movie. Well, he was trying to make a, a feature film on that, but he made this documentary in 2015 called Searching for Padre Pio. For some reason, it's not even on his IMDb page, but I mean, he's in it. He directed it. I don't know why. Um, well, I mean, like, on, a- the Wiki- on the Wikipedia, it says 2022 Padre Pio. Huh. Okay. Well, this was like, I guess, like a research project sketch so it's like him doing interviews with various people i mean it's a documentary like it's like 55 minutes long i mean there's there's copies of it floating around if you look for it um but uh that guy also acquired a bunch of money um to build a hospital uh and as i thought about that i wondered if that was an influence at all on uh, that detail in the script of king of new york um, and just as an, an aside, um, since we, uh, I, I, it wasn't uh, Carlito's way that he he stepped away from to direct uh, King of New York. It was uh, Get Shorty. Um, since we met, since Whoa, we one thing we that would have been weird. Wow, because well, we, we leapfrogged over um, not one of his more beloved films, but Cat Chaser uh, with the Elmore Leonard adaptation, which is kind sure. of kind of an anomaly that comes between China Girl and King of New York, but. Uh, but the Elmore Leonard uh, connection—that's that's where Get Shorty was offered to him, and uh, had he made that, I mean, you know, that could have been interesting. But yeah, I think it all worked out for the best for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I just—I <laughs> don't know. That seems like a whole other movie to me, like <laughs> Abel Ferrara or Barry Sonnenfeld. Hmm. That's interesting to me. Uh, both, but they, yeah. bo- they both started in porn. <laughs> Barry Sonnenfeld started in porn. I didn't know that. I th- I, yeah. I just knew like, oh, he was the cinematographer that worked with uh, the Coen Brothers. But okay, that's yeah. interesting. He was hmm. a DP on old porn shoots. <laughs> okay, well, the, okay, DP porn makes sense. Anyway, um, <laughs> we yeah. So like uh, like the cast, we've already talked about how great everybody is. Uh, you know, uh, Christopher Walken has the weirdest line deliveries, and most people know that. But in this, it seems to work. You know, you know how I I can't I can't do a Christopher Walken impression, but like <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like there's only one Christopher Walken, and just even the way he says, you know, well, you, I, you know, I love money, <laughs> just yeah. like just like things that make me laugh, you know, through just just because it just and I don't like to just automatically go to well. Now we've completely uh, reframed Christopher Walken as this comedian type character because of SNL and his success doing that type of shtick. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, that's not true for something like The Dead Zone for me because I find that to be a really sad, melancholy performance for a lot of reasons. But also, here, just some of his delivery, it, it brought a smile to my face. And yet he's a complete sociopath at times and the way he takes out that one gangster early on is is kind of amusing <laughs> just because he keeps shooting him even though he's already dead um yeah no yeah. i mean it's so, so many great moments involving him that i'll never forget watching this movie yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a great part for him i mean you need to have kind of a larger than life performance um for that a film like that to to work with him at the center. I mean, uh, I, I guess one thing I, I forget where, um, where he says this, but I think that Walken was giving Ferrara like fake Pacino kind of takes as well. Like, and I don't know what that really means or what that looks like, but I don't know if there's like an alternate cut of King of New York in Ferrara's attic that, you know, has Walken doing a more Pacino type, big huh. Scarface type reading of the, of the uh, character. But I mean, as a, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that reestablished walk-in 
round two of his career this as much as bad lieutenant reservoir dogs helped you know with Kaitel. i mean i mean i think that uh i don't want to say they were adrift during a lot of the 80s but i mean the, the hollywood of the of the 80s didn't really always know what to do with those guys um and i think that yeah. you know ferrara for certain i mean you know capitalized on his connection with them as well as he could i mean they were both you know, in consideration, I think, I think for both of those parts, King New York and the Bad Lieutenant, I think, I think Keitel passed on uh, King New York or, or Walken passed on Bad Lieutenant. I can't remember which is which, or maybe they both, you know, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think the, it's, the, I don't know, it, may, it might be the key Walken film, but uh, I don't know, it's maybe a little bit debatable, but it's, no, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think that it uh, is it's the one that's easiest to throw on after a long day of work because it's the most like quote unquote entertaining, you know, of of his mm-hmm. films. Like it's the one that's like the least harrowing <laughs> experience. Yeah, I don't know why Ebert didn't like it. I know he said that the script was pretty weak, but man, there's a lot of great lines and the joy of watching, you know, Lawrence Fishburne ordering, you know, chicken and all like like in the con- confrontation with him and Wesley Snipes and just like. Uh, yeah, and even the, the, the I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say Abel Ferrara is a great action director, but you know the the chase sequence here, and even just the the the, the quick unexpected murder at the funeral, like the, there's just really solid moments that wouldn't be out of place in a Tarantino film, and it makes sense why he's he responded so strongly to this, and it sort of like fueled him at the time to. Um, you know, go forward with what he was working on with something like true romance or reservoir dogs. Like I could just see him, you know, the way I walked out of Pulp Fiction and felt inspired about cinema. I could see Tarantino sitting down to watch this and going, Holy shit. This is, and everybody listened to that. Uh, I'll link it to it in the show notes, but there's a great episode of the rewatchables podcast where Tarantino just sings the praises of this movie to no end in a great entertaining way. No, it's a very fun talk. I mean, they go over that in detail that we couldn't, you know, have time to do. Um, yeah, and it is it, in in a way. I feel like King of New York kind of closes the chapter on Ferrara, like uh, '80s Ferrara, because I mean, this feels like the skills he picked up in his television years, doing Miami Vice and Gladiator and Crime Story. Um, you know, like there's a there's a sheen to it. I mean, even more than China Girl, I think it's a more substantial budget. It feels like a um, you know, like the closing of a certain kind of chapter for him, because after this, he really transitions over into becoming an art house director. I mean, the New York Film Festival maybe gave him a little bit of critical boost, but he stops being, um, you know, the cream of the crop of exploitation uh, genre filmmaking and becomes kind of like one of the enfant terribles of art <laughs> cinema <laughs> you know with bad lieutenant he becomes you know a different kind of filmmaker now, he doesn't really go back to making crime stories except you know with uh our xmas and um maybe one other one i'm forgetting or the funeral but like um they they're a different animal than some like king of new york which is you know still aimed at the at the uh the exploitation grindhouse kind of viewer. Like it has to deliver the goods on that front as well. Whereas I think he becomes more comfortable with searching philosophical contemplative kind of beats in the, uh, in the films from bad Lieutenant onward. Yeah. It's almost like the final moment and image we get from King of New York where 
Frank just closes his eyes and goes limp and dies. It's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's all I could. That's that's a great note to, to end on with this style of filmmaking for him, you know. And like I, first time I saw, it, I was just kind of like, well, that was anticlimactic. I thought I thought there was going to be a big shootout, or I thought that something crazy was going to happen. But no, he just you know sits in that cab and just dies. But now I find it beautiful and kind of uh, remarkable note to end on. Like it's very, it's it's like kind of yeah. He has the shootout in in the sub subway with the cop. Uh, as sort of like the final moment of uh, confrontation and part of me, but I think part of me was geared up because you see all these cops surrounding the, the taxi cab at the end. I'm like, uh Oh, something, something major is going to happen here. And, and then when it doesn't, I think the first time I saw it, I was disappointed, but now I kind of love it. Yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, when you're in the same category as Scarface with the most operatic bullet <laughs> heavy, yeah. you know execution of a main character you could imagine it's like there's nowhere else to go but underneath it which is what they do in king of new york yeah and uh wow bad lieutenant um not not a not dissimilar uh, ending <laughs> very much so uh yeah it's so i'm, I'm gonna say something kind of uh, i don't know because i watched both cuts and i'm gonna say something controversial and that i don't mind the r-rated cut because that scene where he verbally assaults the the, the, the two women in their car and then mm-hmm. starts masturbating, I I don't know if it adds a whole lot other than like emphasizing how despicable and pathetic and ugly of a person that he is. And we already know that by that point. And mm-hmm. it almost slows down the film for me watching the unrated version and, and going, I wonder like the, uh, the, the cut version I, I mean, part of me when I saw it was like, you know what? I think there's a, supposed to be a scene that follows this, and <laughs> I re- have a memory of seeing that scene. So why does it cut? Um, and I and it makes sense why he has it in there. I just don't enjoy it. So yeah, well, I mean, it's meant to be like uh, yeah, <laughs> unpleasant. Yeah, so I understand right. like it's really a more fun film without it. But it's you know, I think that that. I mean, but like just the, the whole idea of like, okay, what you know, if if I had just seen the R-rated cut and it just cuts there it would make me think, well, what did he just do? And what, what horrible thing did like the whole, it plays out scarier in your head as opposed to seeing it kind of idea. And so I don't like, but at the same time in the R rated cut, we don't get the, you know, nude Jesus Christ pose when he's getting high with the hookers. Right. Right. And I love that moment so much. So it's almost like, yeah, let's make our own cut. (laughs) I mean, I think of that scene with the uh, with the teenage girls in the car. I think of it like the gas mask scene uh, in Blue Velvet, as mm. far as like as far as like an almost cartoonishly monstrous exaggeration of like male sexuality gone awry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I okay. think of, I think of them in similar ways. Like they're so grotesque and like almost blackly comical if you if you step outside of just how horrendous they are i mean and it's i mean in bad lieutenant it's really kind of more just verbal debasement i mean versus something like blue velvet where Mm -hmm. it's like physical Mm -hmm. like i mean and it it actually has an impact that's different from the actual sexual assault in the church i mean because it's it's prolonged in a a more like when will this end kind of way uh but i don't know i mean it's I mean, it was unforgettable. I mean, I saw it at an impressionable age, so it's always kind of stuck with me. It's like such an iconic 
scene to me. Um, and it, but yeah, it, it does it does show uh, <laughs> yeah a very ugly uh, portrait of it. I mean, it, it, this is like this is a real breakaway film in that like I don't know had it not been so well received if Ferrara would have like scurried back to more straightforward kind of crime sagas. But this is really where. I mean, you get the drug addiction theme a little bit in Fear City, but this is really where uh, debauchery and hedonism become like prevalent on-screen kind of you know material that he's working with. I mean, that, there's almost nothing else to Bad Lieutenant other than just the the debauchery and horrible behavior, and then that need for forgiveness, that need for grace, and uh, which is something that I think both both Catholic boys, Roger Ebert and Martin Scorsese, like, you know, went crazy over this film because of that. And also, cause I mean, Scorsese had the, the history with Keitel, but like, um, and the yeah. same use of the, of that song in, uh, from mean streets. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that, Oh, that's such a beautiful song and it makes me cry. And it's also like really sad that the, the singer of that song, like unintentionally shot himself. Uh, that's, that's, crazy like there's and obviously uh, you know losing zoe lund at such a young age mainly due to addiction yeah uh, shooting up for real in the film too mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah you know and it's pretty prescient at one point what she says you know vampires have it easy they feed on others we have to feed on ourselves and i'm like oh boy yeah (laughs) i love that yeah, I mean, setting up the addiction, setting up, I mean, yeah, and like like you mentioned earlier, I mean, the real life documentary like quality of um, you know, real New Yorkers reacting to what they think is a dead body at the end. I mean, and just how they react to it is, you know, tells you so much about the the world that you know, Bad Lieutenant is set in and and it's it's such a great use of the uh of the of the city. I mean, uh I I think um this is not my favorite Abel Ferrara film. I, it's 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 near the top, but it wouldn't be like in like spoiler like in my top three. I, but I it, it's it might be the most important work he did as far as like uh, I, I think if King of New York is the most popular, this is the one that is the most like this is the Abel Ferrara film for many people, and I I get why. I mean, beyond its commercial oh, totally, success, I think it's uh, the one that sums him up. You know, maybe the best as an artist, at least this stage of his career. I think it's elevated big time for me because of that scene in the church. Um, I mean, like, obviously I, we, we know the inciting incident and it's really awful. And the, the, you know, that, that assault alone is really, really, really upsetting. And uh, he has a hard time comprehending forgiveness uh, from, from the nun that was attacked and, for, for me, movies don't get a, a lot better when actors really get to just swing for the fences and have a, a true moment of catharsis uh, and certainly calling Jesus Christ uh, a rat fuck <laughs> at one point is pretty uh, audacious to say the least. And right, I don't right. know if people were prepared for that entire sequence where he's screaming with rage and trying to understand why horrible things happen and why he continues to be a horrible person. And he's got a, you know, yeah, like you said, um, uh, aspire for some moment of grace and redemption. And his final act of redemption is this really interesting gray area because on one hand, he's letting these rapists get away more or less instead of killing them. But 
he feels that maybe that's the right thing to do. And that kind of grants him some kind of humanity as if like carrying out the wishes of the nun, you know, like just for forgiving them and letting them go. And yet at the same time, they're horrible people for what they did. Uh, so that, that, that's always like a really interesting feeling. I, yeah. I, I leave the film with. Yeah. He's appropriating her act of charity for his own yeah. redemption. It's, it's, it's an unusual way to end it. Um, Am I? I haven't seen this in a long time. Am I misremembering, or does Clockers end the exact same way? <laughs> that Spike Lee movie. Wow. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a while too. But I think you might be right. I mean, I and haven't Keitel's seen it since the '90s. That. Yeah, Keitel, I think Kaitel has that same beat, but uh, I can't remember the context. I just remember thinking, like, hey, is this the Bad Lieutenant ending? But um, yeah, no, I think it's. I think it's uh, you know maybe Kaitel's most powerful performance um I, I haven't seen everything he's done but i mean nobody's I can't like that guy man yeah <laughs> i can't even do it but it's like yeah oh, well wow. i was i was thinking that if you don't go with just how like that like bleeding sound that he makes like it could be an absurd film because it it does really go swing swinging for the fences like you say like it's it's not a uh it's not a timid performance <laughs> in any respect i mean it, it could it could be I mean, you look at something like Dangerous Game, which, you know, has like some real scenery chewing acting and this, you know, this plays it earnestly. I mean, that's the thing with Ferrara is like, there's no irony. Walks a fine line sometimes, though, I think, where it's, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say like, oh, you could interpret a certain scene like that as being comedic, but uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of reframe a little bit based on what you said about the assault scene as it being not, I mean, I, that's the thing too. It's like, I think even Ferrara even said that he thought of bad Lieutenant as kind of a comedy, <laughs> like a super pitch black, dark comedy, like just his perspective on things is, I mean, again, he was on a lot of drugs at the time too. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But, uh, yeah, it's, it's it, it, this movie, like I can see some people rolling their eyes or well, not you, connecting with it. Well, if you put it side by side with Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant Port of Call in New Orleans, you know, mm. with Nicolas Cage playing the character, I mean, that is playing as a bizarre comedy. Whereas yeah. here it's played jet black serious. <laughs> you know, it, it, it couldn't be, um, it, I mean, there's, it's not ironic or hip. You know, it's, it's like earnest in a way that is probably a little unfashionable. If you don't go with it, it's going to seem ridiculous. Um, even though it is, blackly comical as far as just like i mean i thought about something like uncut gems this time around like just like that kind of that gambler's recklessness i mean i mean but even like and you never really hear bad lieutenant put aside you know alongside things like california split or the gambler or uncut gems as far as like gambler movies oh, but it's yeah, one of the but, sad desperation that comes with that addiction yeah, yeah that addiction to losing um, yeah 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 self-destruction again yeah um you know, just like this, like the impossibility of the bets he's placing, and then just the, like every kind of indulgence. And, and you know, there's there's a few films that follow this that like you know, like the Blackout or Welcome to New York that just they linger on that kind of debauchery. And it's it's it, it, again, it like it pushes it pushes the limits of what entertainment uh, what, what's entertaining about it. But it, and it just becomes kind of tragic in a lot of cases, um, which is like you know it's interesting. I mean, but I don't know if it's going to go for everybody. I mean, (laughs) well, lingering uh, on debauchery is not something I get excited about in cinema. 
Like, I mean, it, I, it, it, it definitely happens. Even something like Requiem for a Dream, I appreciate. I wouldn't call it entertaining, but I think just because of the rhythm and the, the cinematic techniques and the editing and all that, like I appreciate the way Aronofsky presents that story. Yeah. Uh, but his technique is so slick that it yeah. grants you some detachment. Whereas I don't think if Ferrara had made Requiem for a Dream, you would, it would feel more real and less like a, uh, like a, like a, a, a well-composed nightmare. You know, like, you, I mean, you know what film I'm surprised he didn't make is uh, last last exit to Brooklyn. I think that would have been right up his alley. Yeah, I mean, that would have been interesting. I mean, he could definitely do something with that material, but I think he he gets he gets close to it in a way that, like, I mean, he, it feels like he is real close to those like moments. Like he could he could cross over behind the camera and like you know join in. <laughs> you know, whereas yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Something like Darren Aronofsky, I can't imagine him, you know, or uh, I don't know too much about the director, Les Exit to Brooklyn. Is that uh, the guy that made Christian F? So he's definitely no stranger to debauchery himself. But uh, yeah, Yeah, it's it's tricky for me, like, you know, because then you have something like the Doom Generation. I'm just like, nope, I can't go there with with these characters. I don't enjoy watching what they do. So, you know, there's there are moments with film where I'm like, you it's, it's a little too unpleasant. And I, if, if you're not giving me anything to lean on, and I think we had that conversation at some point about empathy, maybe for the uh, supporting characters interview you did with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just like, if there's just this insane detachment or constant abuse, <laughs> I just, I kind of tune out and almost feel like, man, what are you, what are you doing? What's the, what's the point behind doing something like this? But, you know, and I can see people watching bad Lieutenant and also feeling that like, what is the point of spending time with this absolute, you know, train wreck, horrible human being. And then you have that scene in the church where it's almost like, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, obviously he's still an unforgivable mess of a, of a person, but there's there's still a need deep down, like again, a sad desperation that you'd find in characters in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie within that moment of just like, please let me find a connection. Let me find, you know, why like just let me change, in other words, you know? And I might need help doing that too. And some people that's probably why people do t- tend to uh adopt religion into their lives. And it makes sense to me. Yeah. You know? No, but uh, and the, and the final shot of Bad Lieutenant's interesting in the fact that uh, he meets his comeuppance right outside of Trump Plaza. Hmm. <laughs> interesting. Yes, but there was yeah. a lot of movies in between there and uh, this uh, th- one of the more recent ones. So, I mean, we could certainly I can touch I, upon a few. I can touch you, on them. Just well, we, you mentioned Body Snatchers already was your first one, and I think that that's like a satisfying '90s horror. I don't think that it's better than the um the don no. siegel or the philip kaufman versions but it's respectable if you don't like you know you know compare it with those films i think it, it's it's the one that shows that ferrara could make a commercial hollywood big budget movie and really he kind of disappears i mean you don't really feel ferrara's influence on it i don't know how much tampering there was i know that dd allen was brought in to recut the film after he gave his original cuts i don't know how much the editorial process kind of removed Ferrara's voice. I mean, it feels 
kind of like Ferrara, but it's, I mean, it, it's definitely the biggest anomaly on his resume, I mean, even more than the, the porno film or the anything else that he made. It, it feels like yeah, the most anonymous film and, and shows what could have happened to him had uh, his tenure in the studio system really took. But I think both this and Dangerous Game uh, were pretty much like you know buried by their respective studios um yeah yeah and i've said this on two other podcasts before about body snatchers and the the most memorable moment for me involves meg tilly Um, yeah yeah that 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 when she's talking to her husband i just think that's really strong acting right there and really creepy and something that's has stayed with me since first seeing it uh but you know it's it, it, you could tell that also this this version was definitely written by three people. You know, one it, of them being Stuart like, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, and I know Larry Cohen might have done a uncredited rewrite or something along those lines. Oh time. yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting idea, you know, to take away the small town suburban conformity idea and like, you know. Uh, that that whole notion of the body snatchers being relocated to a military base where there's already that kind of like enforced kind of rigidity to the behavior. Like, you know, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. Um, and I think it has some strong imagery. I think it, I think it works. It, it's always going to suffer in comparison to like two other well thought of films. So it's kind of a thankless task to, to remake that story. It's weird that they keep retelling it, but. Um, oh, I think they should now more than ever. Especially well, yeah. with the vaccine and Trump, I think like social media, on. there's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's oh, a lot God. to deal with the conformity idea, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fun. If you, and it's the least Ferrara like film, probably uh, of all yeah, of definitely uh, the ones I watched for sure. Uh, Dangerous game is one where I think he gets a little, mm, I don't want to say self-indulgent because a lot of his films are, but I mean like a little, maybe got, you know, high on his own supply uh a, a, a little ugh, i don't know it's i had a push and pull kind of experience with it where there were things i really loved and then there were things where i'm like mm, this I'd, is not working <laughs> i i kind of love it but i i can understand i can understand people not loving it i think that that I, it came out the same year as Body of Evidence, and I think it was sold like an erotic thriller. I mean, they retitled it. It was originally Snake Eyes, and then they retitled it to uh, That's right. Dangerous yeah. Game. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, like I said earlier, like it feels like it really it engages in myth building in a way because I mean, Ferrara's wife is in it. And like, you know, Keitel is playing like a thinly veiled version of Ferrara. And it, it feels like it's about the hell of making a Nabel Ferrara movie and the psychodramas that emerge on the set. <laughs> like it feels like, but again, like, you know, you know, it has those like, uh, like video recordings of rehearsal footage incorporated in, like it's a document, like the, all the weird documentary choices, which was really radical for like a 1993 Hollywood studio. <laughs> movie. I found that to be really interesting. I like that element. I don't know. I know, I know James Russo is meant to be uh, over the top and crazy and, bigger than life at times but just him just like i need these things i need these things over and over again (laughs) yeah no it's 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 a it's a bit hammy for sure i can't tell i mean but it it almost kind of works for that character because he is too over the top yeah yeah (laughs) but but um 
you know, whereas Madonna comes, I think that might be one of Madonna's greatest performances as an actress, even though she, I, yeah, she, she has let, a great moment where she does this monologue to Keitel at one point. Um, yeah. Even though she happened to her. Yeah. And she's the one that really kind of buried it. I mean, she kind of, I mean, trashed it in the press when it came out and I think, uh, didn't help. And I, you know, I, I think that it's an essential viewing for Ferrara, you know, watchers because it feels like it, it, it really is the earliest example of like really blatantly self-reflexive cinema in his work. I mean, this is something that you get more later with the Defoe films, but it's, um, a very different energy with Keitel doing it. Um, but I also don't think it's Siskel Neva put it on their worst of 93 show. And I don't agree with that. I don't agree I with that. It, yeah. I think uh, it's more interesting than what uh, they should give it more credit. I don't think it's entirely successful. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it, 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 I went into it with low expectations because all I thought it was, was an erotic thriller that bombed and got bad reviews with Madonna. So when I saw it and it was actually about Ferrara, I was like, well, this is, I mean, this is the autorist in me, you know, the fact that he was, this was the first one that was just kind of like really like blatantly confessional. Um, I found interesting and, you know, it's also confessional Nick, Nikki St. John, you know, the same kind of thing, like, you know, the wrestling with spiritual themes, you know, with, with the film within a film, uh, it's maybe a little messy. Uh, I, I, I can't really argue with people that think it like it, it's overstuffed and self-indulgent, but uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of hilarious that like, you know, somebody could make this, you know, with the, with the, uh, the juice he got from bad Lieutenant King of New York, like to make something like this and expect the public to show up and pay for it. I mean, it's, it's bolder than anything Cassavetes did or, you know, uh, yeah, I was other, thinking other, Cassavetes watching it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, well, Cassavetes films could be punishing in their length, so I shouldn't say it's bolder, but it's, it definitely feels like stylistically as radical as anything he tried. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's again, very audacious and self-reflective. And, you know, (laughs) when we talk about like kind of a film within a film, I couldn't help but think of uh, like, oh, I guess, you know, Bergman Island is (laughs) me handsome love. Uh, that's, that's her dangerous game. Like, and then you get, you know, spending time in the mind of Abel Ferrara in this world is challenging. Yes. Um, Well, this definitely feels like a period where the drugs inform the art in a way that, you know, yeah. the, the indulgences, you can't tell how much of that is chemically induced. I mean, so the next film, you know, after that, which we also touched on was the addiction, which is an interesting um, companion in some ways to miss 45. Although it's, you know, uh, it's not something I initially thought of when I saw it. I, I saw it on a back to back with Nadja, the, the other black and white indie vampire movie. That's of, so weird. Because that that's, I put that in my, I put that in my notes as like, you know, I got to revisit nausea because that's what this movie made me think of. Yeah. I mean, this is like another vampire movie as drug addiction metaphor, kind of like Martin or Death Dream. Or there's a, there's a Larry Fessenden film called Habit from around this time. I mean, there's a couple of things that do this, but I don't know that any of them foreground the philosophical concerns quite like this. It's a very peculiar, one-of-a-kind effort i think it's aged really well i I wasn't sure how i felt about it in the 90s but i love it now i do too i i'm surprised i had never saw this as a lily taylor nut um i I, like i think when i saw i shot andy orhall i'm like oh my god lily taylor should win awards and just you know be the queen of cinema yeah as far as i'm concerned like um 
like Tarantino talks about how he just like immediately fell in love with Lawrence Fishburne after seeing King of New York. That's kind of how I felt after seeing I shot Andy Warhol. I'm like, I mean, I obviously I'd seen her and say anything and things like that, but the, mm-hmm. you know, seeing her in that lead performance. So I, I'm surprised I never went back to uh, catch up with this, but maybe it was because it was hard to find. For yeah, a while? It, it um yeah it came out on vhs and i feel like it sat out the dvd revolution until until era put it out on blu-ray maybe That's it had probably why yeah maybe it had an overseas release i can't remember but it, yeah it, it was not an easy film to see on dvd um you know so i think that that kind of you know added to it kind of disappeared same way as like when we talk about what happened was like there were certain films that like you know uh were part of that indie thing that like hit vhs before dvd was like a, like a given in home video and it just kind of slipped through the cracks that way even though the addiction you know certainly like star-studded between lily taylor christopher walken annabella siora and even um you know pre uh, sopranos ed falco you know you have like a lot of <laughs> names people would recognize or um yeah, when I saw Edie Falco, I'm like, oh, is this going to be like if um, if Hal, Hal Hartley made a vampire movie? I don't know. Because yeah. <laughs> the way people talk is really interesting to me in this movie. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's uh, I, I mean, it, it would have uh, it would have come out at the time when Hal Hartley was at his power, you know, his most powerful in the industry as well, I guess. But uh, yeah, no, it's I mean, but it is a horror movie. I mean, it has like you know, explicit violence and it has like a very horror movie kind of denouement. But uh Oh, I'll yeah. say, and the like um, that scene where she's basically like deciding to embrace her addiction, and you know, at the same time, she wants to overcome the just the physical needs that she feels. And but it's like that that point that one point where she's, I guess, like in a closet or kind of in a confined space that it, she has a breakdown of sorts, and it's like a very possession like moment involving her decision not to succumb to salvation or whatever. And just like, instead, I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm an addict and burst into ultra violence at this dinner party late in the game is really uh, amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought of things like rabid too, as far as like mm, the way yeah. the disease is spread in a way that feels like a, a code for like a sexually transmitted disease. But um, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, but I think that uh, certainly like drug addiction is something that can be, you know, introduced by partners and shared. And, you know, uh, as I, I feel like it, it still works primarily as, as a drug metaphor. But I, and even the way that like someone like Walken's character is introduced, like you know, I've, I've kind of found a way to be at peace with it. But, um, you know, yeah, again, like uh, as somebody who, you know, took an existential philosophy class early on when I went to college and just sort of like consumed all that stuff, not just because it was required reading. I was like, Oh my God, kicker guard, Sartre, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> I was just kind of like that. I was devouring all that stuff. And so whenever it sort of comes up in something like waking life or the addiction, I'm just kind of like, Oh, it's like comfort food. <laughs> the, the way people think and talk in these movies. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the addiction was one of my first exposures to what I guess they now call elevated horror as far as like something that <laughs> yeah. was like a horror movie, but also, yeah. Quoting Kierkegaard or, you know, whatever, like, I mean, like something that was like black and white and, you know, uh, had these uh, ambitions or pretensions to something much more sophisticated than what was being sold as horror, you know, at the time. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating film. And actually, uh, I would recommend if you haven't seen it, the, um, 
is it speaking with the vampires? Is it the uh, that short film he did from uh, a couple of years ago that was made for the um, the hmm. Arrow release of the Addiction? But it's a documentary where he talks to Lily Taylor and Christopher Walken, uh, you know, about about that, and I think Joe Delia too. But like he talks to people that were involved with the the making of the Addiction, but they talk about things beyond just the movie, and it's. Like they talk about addiction themselves, like they talk about Ferrara's dr- drug use and Lily Taylor's drinking. I think, and it's 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 oh good, it, I found it on YouTube. Cool, yeah, it's on YouTube, um, and it's on that Blu-ray as well. Um, but yeah, again, like you know, we'll we can get onto the subject of Ferrara's documentaries a little later. But like you know that that uh, it feels like his feature documentaries in that it it kind of it's it's more personal and and autobiographical than just simply. Uh, you know, reiterating some facts about the subject. <laughs> like it's, it, they, they feel like home movies sometimes in a good way. Um, but yeah, no, the, the addiction is, is one that I think I underrated when I was younger and now it's kind of um, grown into one of my favorites. Of his. I want to get high, so high. I want to get high. I was going to say, um, you know, after the addiction, I think, I think to some extent that the, the, uh, the, uh, a period, like a chapter, there's a chapter closing with, uh, with the funeral, which is the last, the last film he did with Nicholas St. John as a screenwriter. That's probably at the top of my list to catch up with. And I will, I'm almost thinking, and we didn't really announce this properly at the top of the show, but we're likely going to be able to see uh, zeros and ones within the month within, you know, probably by, I'd say likely by Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So we might just record like a quick half hour bonus discussion on zeros and ones and put it on Patreon. But I was also thinking of, uh, just briefly catching up and sharing my thoughts on the funeral, because I know a lot of people put that one in pretty high regard. Yeah. Now the funeral is a, um, is a great film and, um, maybe, kind of goes along with King of New York as the most accessible film because it has that connection to, you know, mafia crime family stories like The Godfather and Goodfellas and things like that. And it has like the most star-studded ensemble, you know, you could ask for. I mean, yeah. everyone from Isabel Rossellini to Vincent Gallo to Benicio Del Toro. I mean, the, the leads, the brothers, you know, Christopher Walken, Chris Penn, um, Annabelle Ciora, um, you know, just phenomenal cast. And it's... um you know, you haven't seen it, so I can't. You know, we can't go too far into. It. But yeah, you know, it's like you know, it's a family. Like the three, the three brothers are involved in the crime and set in the 1930s. And you know, Walken is kind of more kind of cool and controlling, and Chris Penn is kind of this, you know, got this crazy violent temper. And then Vincent Gallo, uh, you know, is is kind of getting swayed by radical politics, and um, so it creates kind of a tension. Um, it's you know, it it it. Um, I, I, if you haven't seen it, I can't. I don't want to spoil the because uh, we're maybe we'll talk about it later. But it's 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 a really, uh, I don't know. It's an engaging uh, film with a very uh, dark ending. Um, I don't Why know. hasn't it been 
easy to find or was it never given a proper release? It almost sounds like another addiction kind of scenario. Um, I mean, I have a French Blu-ray of it. I don't know why it hasn't. I mean, but, but, but that's like aimed at the French market so that the, um, the scenes that are in Italian aren't subtitled. Uh, so, Mm. uh, that's a little frustrating. Uh, I don't know why it's never come out on, uh, dvd or, or it has a dvd through artisan but it's like full frame um it's it, it deserves to be uh treated more respectfully respectfully in english language you know home video market than it has been um so yeah i think that i think if it ever came out through a company like arrow or criterion that it would probably be reassessed as as a major work i mean there for our fans for our fans tend to hold it in high regard and it does feel like the end of an era because um, you know, after that, you get into uh, much murkier waters with the blackout, and the blackout is, um, you know, th- that's where you get into like distribution problems. First of all, I mean, I don't think the blackout came out on home video until like uh, early early two thousands, like straight to video, I think. And uh, mm. it's you know, um, that's a film about like Matthew Modine as an actor who. Uh, has substance abuse issues and a conflict with his girlfriend, and then he goes out, and something happens with a with a uh, a, a local girl while he's like visiting a film production in Florida that his uh, his friend Dennis Hopper is directing, and then it cuts to years later, and he's kind of uh, sobered up and in a new relationship. But when he tries to explore what happened that night in the past, um, you know, problems ensue. <laughs> so it's it's got like a thriller ish kind of kind of plot but it's you know again tackling that theme of addiction and debauchery um in a real uh either captivating or kind of drowsy kind of kind of manner like it feels like um again <clears throat> like the the things that feel like artistic choices might also feel like the the drug addict you know the drug a drug addicted uh artist you know like the the chemicals informing the work i mean I don't, I don't know if that's a cruel thing to say. I mean, I, I, I like it. I don't know that it, but that's how I read it at the time that I saw it initially. Um, I'm surprised it took him this long to cast Dennis Hopper. Like that, that, that seems like a match made in heaven. And you would think that they would have probably worked together at some point a lot sooner. Yeah. I mean, Dennis Hopper was on the wagon at that point. So Ferrara yeah. was certainly not. I don't know what that relationship was like. I didn't look into the making of it so much, but it, yeah, I mean, they are two wild men of the cinema but i think that ferrara was in his i mean the, the stories that he tells in tomaso i mean defoe's character tells him in in, um, in tomaso i think yeah. are stories from his time in florida making the blackout um so it's oh, definitely that makes sense okay yeah i was trying to place that like what era that was probably pretty sure yeah, yeah. and i think that this is around the time that like a lot of relationships start to fray i think that joe delia leaves the you know the ferrara team with the next film new rose hotel like old old collaborators start falling away around this period i mean this is like you know um like i said we already are out of nicholas st john's screenplays and then um you know again it's hard to it's hard to know how much of his personal life being kind of rocky impacts the 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 films but that you know they you know, he, he continues to, to keep soldiering through regardless, but the, the, he follows that up with New Rose Hotel. And New Rose Hotel is a William Gibson adaptation. Um, and again, it's a you know, murky and atmospheric, you know, probably a lot 
more cryptic than you know it needs to be as far as um, just following the story. And what's radical about that film is that it uh, it, it it's the story of like a um, you know these 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 guys that are uh, trying to get this. Uh, kind of like scientist for a company to you know defect and join up join up with another company like it's kind of like like corporate like espionage in a way maybe but like um and they're using a a, a young woman played by Ozzy Argento to seduce him and get him to like leave the company and join up with this other company um but it's you know uh what's radical about it is that it has this kind of melodrama this love triangle-ish kind of situation and then it uh it ends with like what feels like 15 minutes of flashbacks to the previous huh. you know part of the like the like everything leading up to it and it's like not like even recontextualized it's just those scenes played exactly the same way but just as memories uh so it, it it's it <laughs> i just remember when i first i'm just like this confusing story and then at like a half hour of flashbacks to that confusing story. <laughs> so I just remember thinking like, what, what is it? But I, I, I've come around to really appreciate it. Uh, you know, as, as an experience, like it's, I, I think it kind of works for me now, but it, I, the first time I saw it, I found it completely alienating. Um, and, and at the time I thought further evidence, like maybe this guy's just lost his mind. I don't know what's going on. Like, why would he, <laughs> why would he structure it this way? But it's, it's, you know, Christopher Walken is is and uh, Willem Dafoe is the two leads, and this is the first, you know, of of, of multiple collaborations with Dafoe. First one with Ozzy Argento, who you know he got involved with romantically, and she was also in um, Go Go Tales, which we can get to. But like, uh, it's you can find pirate copies of it. I know that uh, rarefilm.com at, at this time has a uh, copy that you can stream for free if you're curious. I don't think it's got a Blu-ray release anywhere. Um, but I it's, think it's on Amazon Prime, I think. Oh, maybe it is. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's like uh not an easy film to recommend because it is kind of dense and confusing, but it's got it's got a certain kind of sleazy art art film atmosphere that is, you know, very much on brand for Ferrara if you already like his stuff. I think when you get to RX Miss in 2001, it feels like a slight retreat from the the haziness of blackout new rose hotel it's a little bit more of a new york crime story but um but even oh, that okay. you, i see in it all right <laughs> yeah andrea di matteo you know it you know sopranos mm-hmm, yeah. fame and um you know it's it's another drug dealer kind of story like king of new york and it's dealing with hostages but it's it's so much more uh laid back and and uh, concerned with ritual and atmosphere than like the exploitation movie type thing that he did in the nineties and the eighties. I mean, or, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, probably, I don't know. Like, it, I, I think it's, I think it's an enjoyable little B movie. Like it's not like a, a major work, or, but it, it's, it's enjoyable uh, as, as a, uh, as a crime drama, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to oversell it, but it's, it's a, it's a nice watch. I don't know. It's kind of a minor, film for me but um you know what's interesting though uh you mentioned his music videos and things like that uh mm-hmm. the there's five. one that i <laughs> yeah th- th- that's what i was going to talk about because i yeah. love that song and that what's one of my favorite albums of that year uh and i was i saw this video i'm like yeah this is definitely abel ferrara there's little touches of of his lighting and and uh the casting of gretchen mall 
I was kind of like, this is really kind of cool. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's like you know, a must see, but it's certainly interesting. And uh, I, I can't say enough good things about that song. Cause I always thought it was beautiful and kind of amazing, but yeah, um, it's not a collaboration cool. I saw coming. <laughs> not, yeah, exactly. I never would have thought Ben folds and Abel Ferrara match made in heaven, but still it's, it's, it's obviously really interesting just to see what he, uh, he brought to the uh, short music video world. <laughs> yeah no no i've watched a bunch of his videos and that was one of the standouts um yeah but, that's kind of cool yeah i mean yeah i think if you know ferrara's films around like the time of king new york or bad lieutenant like you know or like like nightclub scenes and party scenes and like the way he shoots kind of party atmospheres i mean that informs a lot of what i see in his music videos i mean that kind of not like slightly decadent nightlife you know uh urban kind of uh vision you know but um yeah he's he's not um front and center of of them the way like say david lynch would be when he gets music video kind of assignments i mean i think that yeah ben folds five i mean you can you can recognize ferrara if you look for it but it's not like um i don't know i wouldn't think of that you know part of his filmography even the way that paul thomas anderson you know videos feel like uh yeah you know real obviously paul thomas <laughs> but uh um, yeah i never would have i mean it's funny like yeah i never would have thought the uh the collaboration between him and haim uh would but but not but now seeing the trailer for his latest film kind of makes sense yeah it makes more sense yeah but but so like um so then he goes from uh, rx miss to mary which is one of my favorites that's like hard to see now um what a that, cast yeah, well, I want to say Mary was the one where I just felt like, all right, maybe they've just stopped trusting Ferrara to even release these films anymore. Like, I, I, I don't think that has ever come out in America on home video. Um, mm. I don't even know what kind of. I think it had like a very limited theatrical release, um, but that's that, just shortly. I mean, that's like the. Um, I guess I guess he had read an interview with Barbara Hershey where she said she hadn't quite gotten fully into the spirit of Mary Magdalene and felt like her performance in Last Temptation of Christ wasn't quite. Uh, what she hoped it would be. And um, so it's this story about this kind of acerbic filmmaker uh, actor played by Matthew Modine, who's making a movie that is kind of conflated with something like the passion of the Christ or last temptation of Christ, but like a Jesus movie, but like an edgy Jesus movie. And then his Mary Magdalene actress is played by Juliet Binoche. And when the film wraps, she can't break the character. Like she feels like, she needs to go on a spiritual quest herself to figure things out and like just leaves the industry and leaves show business to kind of do some searching. Meanwhile, Modine brings the film back to show in New York. It's arousing all this controversy. And uh, there's a journalist played by Forrest Whitaker, who's going through his own kind of crisis of faith. And he's going to spotlight this film, but uh, he becomes kind of obsessed with the, uh, you know, the, the, what this actress is, you know, doing like on her own kind of spiritual journey. And I don't, I, I don't want to spoil anything. Cause it's, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most people haven't seen it that are listening, but like, uh, I don't even know where you can find it streaming, let alone, you know, I, I, I had a, um, someone made me like the, the, I don't know, ninth generation copies of that and go, go tales, like, you know, that are like real murky and like have warnings about you no know, property of such and such. Like, I mean, there, it's not like, I think there might be a DVD like, uh, in Europe, maybe UK for Mary, but 
it's it's I don't know if it's like a rights thing or or what with those films uh, that and Go Go Tales, mm-hmm. but they've never really even that with an all star cast. I think they just don't feel commercial enough to the to the the labels that handle these things. I don't know, but um, but that's you know I think I think as much as the Nicholas St John films like a film that's about like spiritual, um questioning and uh, yearning for enlightenment and so it feels like uh, it feels kind of tied to those earlier ferrara films but um he's he's not constricted by like genre so much like it's not a crime story like some of the earlier ones so um i can see how it might be tricky to market even with that cast but it's an interesting uh maybe the best you know like lost film <laughs> of ferrara um and i'm then- curious about it because I, I mean i know this is a silly cliche to say but i could watch juliet binoche read the phone book so I, i'll watch anything with her in it and yeah and modine is doing like probably the most unflattering quasi ferrara surrogate character because i mean okay. i because on the one hand it's like i can't tell how much it's like it, you know satirizing Ferrara, how much it's like, you know, referencing Mel Gibson, who's, you know, Passion of the Christ was probably, um, I think, I think, um, I think at one point they were talking about using footage from Passion of the Christ as the film that he directed, <laughs> but I don't know if Mel Gibson agreed to that, but like, uh, you know, it, 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 it kind of comments on the last temptation and Passion of Christ kind of controversies, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely an interesting, film that i would say is mandatory if you're like a student of ferrara like that's one of the ones not to skip over if you can find it um gogo tales is also kind of uh it's it's great but it's 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 very different it's like more of a comedy um he i know that he once described it um as like cheers meets killing of a chinese bookie (laughs) um you know it's because it's like a um I think it was like something he tried to get off the ground for a long time. Like at one point he was thinking like it could be a TV series at another point. Mm. It was going to be like an off Broadway play. I mean, it's very much rooted at one location and characters coming and going and hanging out kind of thing. Like it's a hangout movie more than Ferrara's other movies. And it's the most amiable of spirit, you know, as far as like, it's a, um, it kind of ties to fear city in a way that it's about, you know, this guy who runs a, uh, a go-go club and like, you know, money is a problem. And so it's, it's got like that connection to fear city, but played more as a, um, but all, but even I thought of something like bad Lieutenant because it's like, you know, uh, you know, what, kind, what kind of means is he going to uh, have to come up with the money uh, to save, save the day. You know, huh. uh, but uh, this, again, must have been the, this must have been the film that he was alluding to during the Conan O'Brien interview where he uh, towards the end says, oh, yeah, this is going to be a TV show. It's going to be about a, a go-go dancer. And uh, yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Film. Well, I guess I guess what he was thinking is like, you know, it was going to be like an act like like a, a show's shot at a go-go club. And like if you went to the club, you could be in the show. Yeah, that's right. Yep. He mentioned yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, really interesting interview with Conan O'Brien. I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's legendary. But yeah. it's uh Yeah, no, I, I think that Go Go Tales, I mean, again, it's like this cast that's like Bob Hoskins, Matthew Modine, Ozzy Argento, Sylvia Miles, um a, a great a great Defoe performance. But like, you know, like a uh it's a sunnier film than a lot of these. Like it's more overtly comedic and uh, mm. it's, it's a, it's a nice little movie. Like I wouldn't want to oversell it. Like I don't think it's quite the, 
serious work that Mary is, but of the quote unquote lost Ferrara films, like it's definitely like a, uh, you know, a nice surprise if you can find it. I think there might be a DVD out for that somewhere, but not in America. I don't know. Again, like I don't know what the right situation is that keeps those films out. You know, out of yeah, that's really interesting. Like it seems like during the two thousands, that, that seems to be the case where it's like, oh, he made all these movies, but th- you can't find them. Yeah, well, I think that he kind of fell out of fashion critically in some circles that like were like, you know, like the variety Roger Ebert kind of like mainstream critics. I mean, there there were definitely critics that always, you know, put him on a pedestal and still do. But I think that um, as an art house director, he was no longer hot. And it's like, you know, when that happens... You know, like I think of Peter, people like Peter Greenaway that like the, the films just stop coming out uh, here. You yeah. know, it's, you know, maybe that they get financing from sources that, you know, want certain kind of sales to be made or they won't sell it. Um, I think people like Bernard, Bernardo Bertolucci has films that kind of disappear that way. Like just the way that things are financed, like he's not working in the Hollywood system. And so I don't know if the money is coming from sources that want a certain amount. Uh, upon return or they just won't sell it so i I think that like no u.s i don't know if ifc films was involved in those films or not but i feel like no u.s deal was ever made and so they just they just languish in obscurity even though there's a lot to like about them if you're a fan of abel ferrara um yeah before we get to the next one that i've seen which of the uh documentaries from the the latter period of this decade do you think is the strongest your favorite uh that's hard to say my favorite of his documentaries might come a little bit later which is piazza vittorio i kind of like them all about the same chelsea on the rocks napoli napoli Mm -hmm. napoli and mulberry street i kind of like them all about the same um but they're all yeah i I liked what i saw of mulberry street i i found it relatively entertaining i just watched a little bit of it but uh yeah it's interesting that he had that uh that relationship with that um actress that shows up in this next movie oh which one? Oh, yeah well, well the thing the thing with that with abel ferrara documentarian so like i guess what happened was he was going to be an interview subject for chelsea on the rocks which is like this series of interviews with people that used to live at the chelsea hotel and then like some like fictionalized reenactments of, of events that happened there like you know i don't know that the world needed another sid vicious nancy spongen uh <laughs> thing after alex cox did it but like yeah but it's like a um you know it's an amiable like you know shaggy rambling full of heart kind of documentary and that's kind of what he does um you know like i have no idea if they work for non-converts because not like when spike lee or jonathan demi made documentaries like ferrara is definitely a character in all of them um so in that respect it might be closer to like how Werner herzog you know engages in the documentary uh field where it's like you know the director is often a you know uh a clear you know character in them i mean maybe not like the central character but he's always kind of present in them and um you know but i mean you look at something like mulberry street and it's like ostensibly about the uh was it san gennaro uh uh street festival in new york but it's also just about ferrara like wheeling and dealing and hustling and talking to people and mixing it up and talking about deals and complaining about the screenwriter that is claiming credit for go-go tales and like like i mean it's like it's it it's oversharing you know in the in like how he's just he, he has no filter. He leaves these things in that uh, just lets you check in with Abel Ferrara as much as you're checking in <laughs> on the, you know, the festival itself. And, um, you yeah, know, it, feel, it feels like a fly on the wall kind of experience where it's like, oh, wow, I'm really seeing shades of this guy in a way that I hadn't 
anticipated, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, 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 but it's interesting too. Yeah. I mean, you look at something like Vittorio uh, with the, um, uh, what is it? The Piazza Vittorio that comes uh, a little bit later. And like, I mean, it has footage of him kind of badgering the interview subjects. Like, I mean, as much as it has like the interview subjects themselves, like has him kind of engaging with them and arguing with them and, you know, mixing it up with them. And, uh, but yeah, every single one of his documentaries feels like that. I think the um, the one that I saw searching for Padre Pio is maybe the least combative of the mm. Ferrara. Like, I mean, he's kind of just quietly listening to these stories and cr- trying to, get, I guess, work out his own angle for what you know the film, the, the, the yeah feature film version he's talking about making. But like, um, yeah, all of his documentaries are, I think, at least worth a watch and maybe a more uh, approachable. Uh, vision from Ferrara than some of his, you know, uh, journeys into degradation and debauchery. Um, they, they they show another side of him that's like this warm, grizzled old survivor. You know, I think I don't know at what point he kicks the drugs, but it's like they feel like like they all feel like post addiction films to me. Um, like where he will comment on those years, but they feel like a little bit more. I wouldn't say more focused because they do feel kind of rambling in places, but um, yeah, they are meandering but, at times, but it's, but, but compelling, you know, I, uh, I, I had a mixed response to 444 last day on earth, which uh, I love. It's, it's Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think I can see myself loving it more now that I know what I'm in for. I always make that like my excuse <laughs> where it's like on the first viewing, I wasn't sure how to, you know, absorb it. But uh, now that I know what I'm in for and how things play out and certainly um, it's an interesting movie to watch now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when people were like uh, isolated on, and on the verge of thinking the world was ending more or less uh, it's, it, I, I really love just the idea of, you know, spending time with two people trying to process you know, the fact that the world is going to end and how they deal with it and, you know, uh, dealing with their insecurities and the w- just the way they they process all these different emotions. And certainly there's, you know, a lot of passion and there's a lo- like a lot of uh, misplaced anger at certain points and really just like yelling out like Defoe has a really great moment where he's just sort of talking to himself and uh, on the roof of his building and, and, and like, you know, he's, he's trying to deal with this crazy thing that everybody in the world's going to face sooner than later. Uh, I, I don't think there was as much attention paid to uh, Shannon Lee, the, the woman that he's with uh, mm, also yeah. for companion at the time. Uh, but again, like dealing with his uh, addiction late in the film, there's, you know, sort of a, a nice meeting that he has with some old friends down the street. Uh, in another building. One of them is uh, Natasha Leone. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I, I really like that scene a lot. I, I Maybe I, I don't know, maybe it was a little too isolating or it's just like uh, uncomfortable in the same way that it probably would be in that scenario. Uh, and, you know, some of the, um, some of the, f- the footage of, uh, you know, what's being shown on the TV, I found really interesting too. Uh and like saying like, you know, Al Gore was right. <laughs> so right. Yeah, the yeah. ozone layer and uh, all that stuff. Yeah. It, like uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this happens years down the road, but uh, you know, nevertheless, I, I, again, you have Willem Dafoe as your main character. He carries this thing pretty well. 
throughout the entire film. And uh, it ends the way you kind of expect it to end. Uh, and, you know, why not? A lot of filmmakers do want to make their own sort of apocalyptic drama that's also, uh, you know, uh, self-reflective in the way that we'd get to later on with Tommaso. Yeah, but, I mean. Yeah, I, I liked it. I didn't love it, though. Yeah, I mean, this is one that I mean, when I saw it, I I, I didn't I didn't see Mary and Gogo Tales until like I got bootlegs of them later on, and I didn't see his documentary. So for me, I it was like a ten year gap between RXmas and four forty four Last Day on Earth. So it felt like I wasn't sure what I was even going to get from a new Abel Ferrara film at that point because I thought, you know, like maybe his films were kind of hard to see for a reason. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't sure like what I was going to, and so it was kind of a nice surprise that it was so personal and grounded. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I feel like it's going to be impossible for me not to see it as a trial run for Tommaso. Um, yeah, yeah, it, no, definitely. And it's, you know, shot in one location practically. Yeah. And it's like Abel Ferrara has Willem Dafoe playing his surrogate. And it's, you know, again, like his, much younger real life companion is the is the is the lead actress you know is the is the companion of the Defoe character um and it's you know a, a very much like you feel like you're in the uh i mean it's a little less uh, claustrophobic in Tommaso, but i mean you do you do get a sense of like that apartment being the main place we we stay uh in them even though i guess yeah. um more so in in last day 444 last days and then i thought about things like from the late 90s like uh uh, last night and book of life and all those films that were like, you know, end of the end of the decade kind of, you know, uh, portraits of the apocalypse. They even thought of melancholia, um, which sure. was, that the, was that the same year. I think it might've been, I think so. But, yeah. But I mean, and also like his integration of something like Skype is really well used in this film. Yeah. But it's like that, that insecurity over having a much younger partner, and also mm-hmm. just that kind of like, you know, you're always going to be an addict, even if you're clean for a long time. And so like, just, you know, like on the last days, is he going to, is he going to like get high? Is he going to give in one last time to the old demons? Because, you know, the world's going to end. Why not? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's that it's in a way that like Tommaso also tackles those themes, but like without even the, um, you know, the disaster movie science fiction kind of element of, uh, you know, the, the apocalypse. It's just, I mean, that just kind of leaves you with the character and his own kind of insecurity. Um, this is got a little bit of ties to genre, but for the most part, it feels just like, like the most clear window into what he really is feeling, uh, of any of them, even more than dangerous game. I mean, up until this point, this feels like the most autobiographical film. And at the time that was just kind of like, Oh wow! It's like not only is this surprising, but it's coherent and clear what he's feeling, and it's the only film that he's the sole screenwriter other than Tommaso. Um, so oh, I don't yeah, know. That's if, a good point. Yeah, I don't know if there. I don't know if there's other uncredited writers than he takes full credit or not. I don't know what his writing process is like, but um, but it's an interesting movie to watch now because it does feel like it was filmed in the middle of a quarantine. You know. Yeah, because it's again very few actors in a single location, and you know it could be a play, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it does feel that way, and uh, you know, you have things that resonate with the old film, even like the fact that she's a painter kind of resonates with Driller Killer. Mm. <laughs> I mean, but it's a uh, yeah. I I think it's 
I think one of his major films. Um, I didn't think that the first time I saw it, I thought it was just like, Oh, that's, I, I kind of like that. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't, I, it's one that it grew on me, you know, and now I, I see it as one of his, uh, if you, if you're looking for autobiographical content then I think it's one of his major films, like it wouldn't be like what you throw on at a party. I mean, you put on King of New York or something <laughs> like that, but I mean, yeah, if, yeah. But, you know, uh, but I'll watch it again in the future. I'm sure. And maybe get even more out of it. Yeah. Um, but the um, I don't know if you had anything to further you want to say about that one before I. I don't think so. Not off the top of my head. I, I you know, it's again. I'm I'm a sucker for end of the world movies. So <laughs> it's like his Miracle Mile, maybe you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah, I think I think after that, 2014, he has two movies that come out that year: uh, Welcome to New York and Pasolini. And you know, I mean, that was I mean. I don't know. You haven't seen them, so I, I won't go long on them. But just that the, the, uh, the Welcome to New York is is the uh, the one that's based on the Dominique Strauss Kahn scandal, the French politician who um, you know was said to have sexually sexually assault a maid, and the big legal battle. And I think that the the legal aspect of the film is why it's hard to see now. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, I could. Be I think wrong. I read that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it, I mean, it's pretty damning. I know that the real life figure, even though they changed the names, was like, you know, outraged and wanted to take legal action. And um, I don't know that it ever came out in France because of this. And, you know, I don't, you know, I, it, setting aside all the real life uh, elements, it's one of Ferrara's uh, maybe best films in that it, um, you know, the, just that portrait of, of boorish, horrible male behavior. Uh, it's like the bad lieutenant with a lot of money, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I mean, essentially, right. you know, it's essentially like one, all of his most uh, horrible male characters, but like given all the power in the world to be their absolute most evil. Hmm. Um, and then being taken down, uh, you know, by New York, by cops, by, you know, you know, the good guys in this case. And then, then you're kind of put in the shoes of like, you know, the main character in prison and you know, humiliation. And um, so it kind of puts you in like different places as far as like who you, you know, relate to or, or um, identify with, but it's, it's pretty powerful. It's a little bit long and it's, you know, not a fun movie because it does <laughs> deal with like a, like debauchery and then B like legal process. <laughs> so it's not like escapist, but it's, it, I mean, I mean, it shows like that Ferrara had like by this point, like, you know, Total control of his faculties. A great performance from uh, Gerard Depardieu, uh, and just as brave as Keitel, I would say maybe even braver because it really shows him, you know, in a pretty unglamorous way. I mean, just naked as well as like the character itself is such a horrible character. Um, that um, I, and this is one that's substantially changed in the R-rated versus unrated version, as far as like it casts some doubt in, about his guilt in the R-rated version, where it's like pretty. Uh, cut and dry case for him in the unrated version. So I think that might even be like a legally motivated kind of change in the editing of the film. But um, yeah, no, it's um, I'm curious. I, I, that's another I'll put on the list. Yeah. I mean, point. you won't have fun with it, but you might respect it. I think is what I would say, knowing your taste and knowing the film. I don't, I think, I think it's, it's definitely, um, I mean, how I described it, you know, as far as like, it, it's, it's, it's pretty grim uh pretty grim going but i think i think strong pasolini by comparison is 
really subdued. And I was kind of surprised because I, you know, I was going into it thinking like, oh, well, you know, Ferrara plus Pasolini, like this is going to get into some crazy kind of territory, especially because it's dealing with the last days of Pasolini's life before he was murdered, you know, and it, you know, it has like this, um, you know, uh, like it's about the, it's about the, um, you know, the filmmaker, poet, novelist, public intellectual, you know, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. And it's kind of about his final days. It has like these reenactments of interviews he does and, hmm. uh, visual depictions of, um, projects he was working on at the time, like, uh, one of his unrealized films and, um, you know, uh, it, it, but it, 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 um, it also doesn't shy away from the fact that he's, you know, fond of picking up, you know, young boy prostitutes, like those rent boys, you know, in, you know, uh, his sexuality is shown as somewhat predatory. Like it's not like a, um, completely fawning kind of portrait of the man. Um, (laughs) but you know, I mean, that's, it's, you know, balance in that way, but it does, uh, portray his murder as more of a hate crime than a say a political assassination which i i saw this at the new york film festival and the q a pretty much boiled down into one guy yelling at ferrara and ferrara kind of not letting it go because of that decision because there are some people that think that you know pasolini was killed for uh you know like intentionally killed because of his views and like political reasons and uh, maybe maybe because of the um you know, the, the last film he made, Salah, 120 to Sodom, and like the political uh, statement oh that, that that oh, is yeah. making. But um, regardless of whether or not you believe that, you know, you know, he was killed in a hate crime or not. But uh, I think that it's pretty, pretty compelling movie. I, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's uh, Defoe is fantastic as Pasolini. And it's um, thankfully that did come out here at, you know, uh, and protected by Kino Lorber. This is around the time that he starts working with Kino Lorber who, uh, have put out, you know, a few of his films on home video since then, including, uh, the projectionist and Tommaso and, uh, maybe I forget if they put out Siberia as well, but like they, you know, it becomes a case where, um, he's being protected by a label that wants to treat his work respectfully, which is a good thing. Yay. Yeah. We need more of that out there for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, you know, at the time I went to Pasolini, I thought this could be like one of his great last statements, but now it feels like, you know, a warm up for, uh, you know, the maturity of something like Tommaso, which we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's you, uh, you put this pretty high on your list and I was kind of, uh, again, I obviously I'd seen a number of Ferrara films by, by the time I've caught up with this, but at the same time I was, uh, a little, uh, confounded by some of the more, surreal touches late in the film mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily think they were strong or uh, w- I was kind of, it was more perplexing and I kind of went, well, I don't dislike it, but I didn't feel um, as, as overwhelmed with, you know, the sense of this is a great film uh, yet. <laughs> I think um, IndieWire described it as a micro budget Birdman, which is weird, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I guess I can kind of see that I don't know, in a weird way, but it's like, I don't know. It's, it's one of the more humane, like when you binge on a bunch of Ferrara films and you know, there's, there's, I wouldn't say there's a lack of humanity in a lot of them, but certainly something like bad Lieutenant is, you know, certainly a challenge in terms of how much debauchery you have to experience. And, and this is kind of like the opposite of that, where 
it's um, a little bit more intimate and, you know, Defoe plays the title character and, you know, he's in, um, you know, a 12 step rehabilitation program, teaching an acting class uh, and all the while trying to embrace, you know, domestic life with, uh, with, uh, with again, an- another younger uh, wife and a young daughter. So, it, you know, you kind of get like bits and pieces of, you know, almost like just, I wouldn't say in a meandering style, but just various slices of, this is like the closest he's made to like a slice of life character study. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I kind of appreciated that. And, and certainly, I don't know. I don't know how Defoe keeps getting better and better with age, but he's had quite the streak around this time. And I want him to start winning awards. Damn it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. when, you know, Florida project lighthouse, this, why hasn't he been given like some, I mean, I don't know. Maybe those aren't the types of films that win Academy awards. I realize, but still, I feel like he does. He deserves like way more recognition and respect. And something like this is kind of, uh, yeah, like a high point in his career and certainly basically playing Ferrara, <laughs> you know, there's, there's an intimacy here that's really profoundly, um, beautiful at times. And certainly there's those moments in the AA scenes like you talked about that are very revealing and yet very humane. Uh, and, and, you know, again, an insight into the creative process, like at times he's scribbling down ideas for what I, I assume is to be Siberia. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely a Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I which I didn't see, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, that has to be it. Uh, like we watch uh, some research videos that he's he's watching, stuff involving bears. <laughs> yeah, which, which I didn't which I didn't know that you know the first time I saw it, I hadn't seen Siberia yet, so I didn't know that he was like literally putting <laughs> putting that film into the plot of Tommaso. Um, Actually- but I'm not sure about the ending um, in terms of the crucifixion. Like, I don't even know if Defoe was 100% on board with that choice, the crucifixion. No, he was not. Um, he may or may not have warmed up to it. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that all of the imagery at the end, like the Christ imagery, all totally works for me either. I think it's a little bit of an overreach when you get to the mm-hmm. last act. Even the explosion of violence feels a little bit... Uh, abrupt compared to something like some of his earlier films that end in explosions of violence, like the funeral, like this feels a little bit more out of nowhere, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me somehow. I I can just forgive that. That's like, I'm like the Lieutenant I'm forgiving, you know, things, you know, whether or not I should, you know, but like, I, I kind of, um, I mean, for me, this feels like for so much of the running time, the best film he's made that if it goes off the rails a little bit in the end, I can still kind of, just go with that. Like he's, he's trying some things that may or may not work, you know, but it's not like, doesn't destroy the movie for me. I mean, it just kind of like, okay, well I, you know, I, I still haven't completely been sold on him on the cross at the end, <laughs> but um, I do like when yeah. the little, when the daughter is dancing to Sophia Loren after that. So it kind of leaves me on an up note, but. Uh, oh yeah, no, that's a, it's a wonderful final note to end on for sure. And yeah, it's, I, I think until it's, that point, it, it feels like his pain and glory as far as like Almodovar's like uh, late, late career kind of film as far as like the the one time bad boy of, you know, his regional <laughs> cinema is now kind of like an old survivor who's no longer, you know, 
gonna be the the uh, the rebellious young Turk on the scene, and he's just kind of in a uh, contemplative mode. Um, you know, and if Ferrari being Ferrari, you still have like you know. The, these moments of just like you know him dancing with, with the nude woman or like like all sorts of things that like feel like i mean maybe i think of someone like fellini as far as like you know no, no matter how old you get you can still be like that randy old devil you know that you know <laughs> that, that ferrara is never gonna be completely respectable um but you know i i love how it is just the rituals of the acting class in the aa meeting and we see like these little seductions that he plays out without really you know, initiating a proper affair away from the woman he's with. But like, you know, Defoe is constantly out to seduce, whether it be like, you know, ingratiating himself with the people at the market or, you know, students or, you know, people at the AA meeting. Like he's he's an old seducer and addict. And, you know, while he stays away from the drugs, he still has that reflex to seduce. Um, which I don't know if Ferrara has that too, but I mean, you know, he's definitely somebody that, um, you know, he's still just like 444 still kind of struggles with, uh, the disconnect with his, you know, younger companion, you know, and like, you know, yeah, they there's don't certainly a fear of losing the younger companion yeah. very much so. Yeah. And so maybe the seduction is also a way to like act out that insecurity. Like I'm still, I've still got it. I can still pick up women, you know, if, if she leaves me or I can still, you know, I'm still the charming old rogue that I always was, you know? Um, but I think that this is like, yeah, I mean, when he's talking about stories that probably happened to Ferrara, you know, making the blackout, like it feels like the most autobiographical of all of them. Cause it's like, you're, you're practically, and he's, he's working on Siberia. Like it, there's like so little to separate it. I mean, we talked about Bergman Island. It feels like that kind of level of like, this is only slightly reimagined what I, what the light, what his life is like. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's so interesting that, um, It'd be a good movie for his therapist if he has one, because <laughs> it's you get like, I, I mean, it's not a movie that feels like therapy, but there's it's like a confession at times, and yeah. just an, an examination of these random feelings he's having. Because like, I don't know. I mean, maybe he ha- has anger issues, and that's why we see that you know that sequence where uh, you know he's yelling. When he blows up at her on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. I mean, it's and he yeah. seems like really you know insane. Upsetting. I mean, and yeah, but there's all the, the scenes like when he finds the Pakistani man drunk on the street who's been yelling, he goes and oh, has yeah. a moment with him. It's like all these little digressions that don't feel like they are necessarily part of a uh, A to B to C kind of plot, but they all kind of just add to the overall tone and feel of the movie. Like as far as like almost documentary-like sequences kind of mixed mm-hmm. with things that are clearly scripted. I mean, I think about the lines like, like we don't have relationships, we take hostages. You know, as as, oh, a way to, yeah. as as a way to describe, <laughs> you know, that kind of personality, and you, you know, it's, you know, you could say that about like half the characters in the Ferraris films. You know, as far as like that being their approach to uh, life is very self-involved and very like needy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was. It's similar to a conversation I had with a friend about codependence and like her reframing it as inevitable when you're that close with somebody and kind of like going, it's there can be a healthy form of that as opposed to like me automatically going, Oh no, it's terrible. It's not good because then you become too dependent on the other person and then you lose your sense of self and all that stuff. So I, 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 yeah, I like that, that, that monologue that uh, the woman has. And certainly 
I think a lot of people have covered this idea in film and their art where am I, is it, is it okay that I'm married to this person and trying to, you know, basically evolve and hopefully grow up when there's all these other sort of primal instincts and just addictions and things that have defined me as a person that I have clung to all my life. They're kind of going away more or less, but they're also still there, like haunting you at the same time. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting work. I mean, it's funny. He, he's somebody that was so identified with New York for so many years, uh, that it's interesting for me to me that he's, essentially an Italian, you know, director now. I mean, he's, he's based in Italy. A lot of his films are, are set in Italy. You know, uh, I think that for him, maybe New York is a place where a lot of bad shit happened. And I think he needs to have that distance. Um, but you know, I, I think that's, I know, I remember when Scorsese, um, made, I think it was raging bull, but like he, or King of comedy, one of those like films that like, he wasn't sure how people were going to take it. Um, and that uh, if it didn't do well, he was just going to maybe flee to Italy and make, you know, documentaries about the saints. Like he was going to like become a new Rob, Roberto Rossellini kind of kind of character. And I, and I think of that that when I think about Ferrara, like how, you know, when Ferrara's career in American film seemed to be kind of hitting a tough spot, like he, and, you know, partly because of the drugs, I, he just, you know, he, he fled and cleaned up and reinvented himself. Uh, or not reinvented, but like, you know, reclaimed his life you know and his career and and yeah. i think i think grew as an artist i mean in ways like i don't think he could have made tommaso in the 80s you know or, or in the you know like i mean that's i i love the exploitation films and you know like miss 45 and things like that but like i appreciate that he also has this kind of uh interesting kind of rich personal filmmaking side that he seems more in control of now than in the early earlier attempts at it um, so it's very, you know, interesting to see what he will make next. I mean, Siberia, I can touch on because you haven't seen that one. I and mean, that one is kind of a little bit I didn't hard. Read a lot of good, I didn't read a lot of good things about it. And, you know, disappointing because, again, it's Defoe and it's the follow-up. But I, I, yeah. I, um, I kind of like it without thinking that it completely works. It's definitely the, one of the more obscure efforts. In some ways, it reminded me of... Um, maybe like cat chaser or something. And that it's like a, uh, a, which we didn't really talk about, but like, but the, um, you know, it's a character who's kind of uh, abandoned his old life to like live in some, you know, uh, other part of the world with his own business. In this case, it's like a guy that like uh, opened a bar in Siberia so that like, he doesn't even overhear uh, his own language being spoken. Like he, you know, he's, he's hmm. encountering Russian clientele in this little, little bar. Uh, that he runs and um, but then it's just like he he's experiencing these memories and fantasies um, and it gets quite surreal Uh, I don't know that it totally works but I'd say it's um, I don't know like it's not uninteresting if you like Ferrara but uh, I'd say it's one of his weaker films and definitely like uh, like definitely like a come down after Tommaso, but I also read some of the reviews that really trashed it. And it's like, well, I think it's more interesting than you're giving it credit for, but yeah, it's definitely like a harder sell than uh, even Tommaso let alone, uh, you know, the more. Yeah, and I, also, I don't know the, uh, the plot for, for zeros and ones, but I'm curious to see him work with Ethan Hawke. 
that's what's really the driving force for me to, you know, make an effort to see it well, do you sooner know, than later. Well, you know, Ethan Hawke was originally supposed to play the lead in 444 last days on uh, ah, last days. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, now I can see them working pretty well together, especially post first reformed, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's in um, Chelsea on the rocks. I mean, um, I could see them. Yeah. Fitting like perfectly well together. I mean, and I would say that like, um, yeah. Keep an eye out if you're a fan of Tommaso and or Siberia for Sport and Life, which is the documentary um, hmm. that Ferrara made while promoting those films with Defoe in, during the pandemic. Um, I think that's the last thing that he made oh. um, that we can see. Um, and I think IndieWire has a link to it. Like they maybe have exclusive streaming rights to it or something. I'm not sure. It's like an hour long, but it's again, like all those Ferrar documentaries, like this shaggy, rambling, amiable kind of thing. But it's it shows the warm um, friendship that uh, Defoe and Ferrar share. And, you know, Defoe in particular is so articulate always when he talks about his craft and his uh, the approaches to things that I think it's, um, I don't know that it will necessarily make Siberia any more approachable to people that find it a little bit too baffling, but uh, it's, it's enjoyable and it has a lot of uh, Ferrara playing rock and roll on stage as well. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, well, like I said, we might catch up with zeros and ones and, and talk about that one further. Cause again, I'm very curious about it. I guess it's more of a terrorist thriller possibly from what I gather, just looking at like the general synopsis of it. Yeah. But it was I- made during the lockdown apparently. Well, I never so. read about, you know, his films in advance. I just go in cold and, you know, I, I, I tend to like them. So I'm excited to see it. I can't wait. Yeah, same here. And uh, overall, I like I said, I'm, I'm definitely a fan. Uh, certainly the ones I watched, for the most part, I really didn't, you know, I, even the ones that didn't connect with me personally, I, I like you mentioned, they all have strengths and reasons to watch these films for sure like there's nothing i absolutely walked away from going oh that was awful i wish i hadn't spent my time watching that you know even something like dangerous game where moments of it didn't sit well with me necessarily and i didn't think it all came together successfully in the end there's you know a lot of insight into how he approaches the art of filmmaking to me that makes that movie worth seeing and definitely not definitely shouldn't have been dismissed the way it was. So yeah, I feel no. that way about a lot of his work. I think everybody should check out, you know, just the, a number of the titles that we brought up that they even sound remotely interesting to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say that every one of them is worth a, a watch. And um, unfortunately, you know, a film like Mary, you know, you might have to do a little bit more digging, but um, you know, maybe one day these things will become more available. I mean, that that's always the hope with the, with a filmmaker like this. I think that, you know, I think maybe like someone like Sam Peckinpah, you know, when they're no longer around, I think a lot of these films will get reassessed in a positive way that were maybe uh, uh, had mixed reception in their in their initial release. Um, I, I find just as in my own experience, going back to a lot of the films that I was so-so on, you know, years ago, I think have only grown richer for me. I mean, think of something like China Girl, especially 444. Um you know, and so something like Tommaso already feels like, um, like one of those great elegiac latter day kind of works that, um, 
you know, I don't know if he can top that one, but, you know, I'm excited to see him try. Kind of feels like the way I felt that first performed with Paul Schrader, you know, just kind of like, oh, <laughs> shit, you had another one of those in the in the chamber? I had no idea. I thought you were done making your best work. Um, I know, right? Like, the, the, <laughs> these filmmakers keep going, you know, and I'm 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 always interested in, especially when once you become, and a lot of the directors I've covered on this show, I almost feel like not necessarily like a loyalty to keep keep up with what they're doing, but more of a curiosity and and a hope that I can keep up with. Like you know, uh, it's why I made I made an effort to go see the card counter in the theater just because I'm like, oh, I really love Paul Schrader's work. And uh, but again, similarly to how I experienced First Reformed, I I liked it but didn't connect with it entirely as a whole. Like there are things about it that I kind of went, hmm, I don't know if I like that choice or not. Did but you, I bet if I watch it again, I'll feel differently. Yeah, I forget if you uh, if you got more out of the uh, first reformed on rewatch or not. But yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, I yeah. did for sure. Yeah. yeah, no, I think I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm gonna, you know I, I knew the the uh, tour theory has its yeah, problems, and I think that <laughs> certainly with someone like Ferrara, when you have figures like Nicholas St. John that are like so essential um, to. Um, you know, the work uh, that it becomes a complicated, muddy thing. And, you know, notions of the, uh, you know, the cryptic male genius kind of filmmaker is, you know, kind of an unfashionable kind of kind of uh, idea, I guess, with, you know, uh, in film discussion circles. I mean, I, I know that like uh, a few people that I've crossed paths over the year, like Ferrara is their favorite director. I've never been hmm. that, that, kind of guy with him but I, I i get why i mean i there's there's definitely not another career that really feels like his um and he's such an idiosyncratic survivor uh that it's it's easy to admire him even when not every idea works um so yeah no i mean you gotta you gotta admire the hustlers that st- stay in the game you know despite like every obstacle <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, for sure. And I can understand why people consider him a favorite or put him in very, very, very high regard. And it makes sense. And certainly my top three films reflect my uh, love and that I believe if if they're not all five star masterpieces, they're they're pretty close. Uh, and for me, my top three Abel Ferrara films would be and they're very obvious choices, I would think. But number three is Bad Lieutenant. Number two is King of New York, and number one is Ms. 45. Yeah, I mean, I can rank them, but I, I, I'll i just say, like... Ms. You don't have to. Ms. 45, Tommaso, and King of New York would be my my, my go-to first th- three that come to mind, but... Uh, yeah, and Tommaso would be my number four. Yeah, I think... Um, uh, and, and, the addic- and the addiction would be number five, so I might as well just give the top five. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I can rank them beyond that i mean that's already kind of i mean that's leaving out a bunch so yeah i mean you've heard me talk about them all just now so i mean you, i i feel pretty strong about a lot of them um and even the ones that i feel like you know rx miss or cat chaser which we didn't really talk about um you know uh they're interesting i mean like i there's not like anything that i i think is like oh my god why did they make that <laughs> yeah i know and i figured like you know the with a filmography that extensive and certainly um his reputation and the fact that you watched everything <laughs> I was like <laughs> expecting there's gotta be a stinker, you know? No, no uh, I really don't but, think so. I mean, something like Siberia, I would say doesn't, that's quite, what I read. doesn't yeah. quite work, but I mean, I would rather have that than something that is dull. <laughs> like it, 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 you know what I mean? Like it's not dull. It's just, 
like this weird overreach. And I feel like it could one day work for me, but it just, if I'm being honest, it's still kind of like a little bit bewildering to me, that one. But, um, you know, I mean, if taking that versus some of the films we've talked about on the podcast, like, um, as you mentioned Schrader, like it's not like uh, dying of the light or something, you know, it's not, it's not like a, a fiasco. It's just, I don't know. He, he might just be reaching a little bit too far on that one with the, the surrealism of it. It feels like a little bit left field, but I don't know. It's nice try, I guess, but it's <laughs> best I can say. Yeah. About it. Well, that's the thing too, is nice tries, you know, swings and misses are sometimes interesting of the, in of themselves. And that's, you know, even, even, uh, like a favorite director like David Lynch, I'm certain that, you know, there are, there are moments and certainly films that he's made like Dune <laughs> where you kind of go, Oh, that didn't maybe that didn't entirely work for me, but it has elements that I find interesting. Yeah. You know? I think, I think the cooking of the hot dogs to come undone in the Duran Duran concert video for me is the nadir, but I mean, oh, you know, wow. yeah. Yeah. Because hot dogs Oof. come undone too until you cook them. <laughs> I get oh it. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so bad. Whoa. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Bill, for coming on. This was a great talk. I, I again, I'm always. It's so weird how you get nervous because, like, really, are we going to have that much to say about some of these films? And I feel like we did a pretty good job. I'm well, pretty happy. You. Yeah, thank you. It was yeah, a lot of fun. I, I, I never know, you know these things, but uh, yeah, I, I, I hope people got something out of it. I mean, uh, yeah, no, he's he's one of my favorites. And uh, where can we find you on the internets? I'm sure you'll be back again in the future, probably even early next year for another director that we'll probably just discuss and figure out what who that'll be. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. right now, I um, and supporting characters is still on hold. Um, I did. Um, I've been working on a um, a commentary that I can't say what it is, so that's kind of taken up my time when I'm not watching Ferrara movies or New York Film Festival movies. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters is where you can find my old episodes, and I'm going to be on a bunch of podcasts coming up. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing. But you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Did you, rec- did you, rec- did you record the uh, Lost Highway episode? Uh, nope. Next month I'm doing, uh, I'm doing that and I'm Oh, okay. I thought it was this month. Yeah. Yeah. We moved it to November. We're doing, um, so I'm going to be on, uh, yeah. Projection booth on lost highway. I'm going to be on genre grinder talking about, uh, seventies horror films that like, yeah, like, like slightly deep, deeper cuts. I get well, not, not that deep cuts, but like, you know, like the, uh, yeah, like uh, left field, seventies uh, horror choices. Uh, I'm even going to be, um, briefly on, um, a pretty big podcast that uh, used to be on the Narrow Plane Network, but uh, I'll tell you about it. Uh, off oh, ho, 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 ho. Well, okay, nice tease. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, like I said, next month probably, I maybe pre Thanksgiving. We'll see. But uh, the next director was going to be Sarah Polly because I love her, and <laughs> my guest will be uh, Kate Blair. And uh, yeah, she was on for the Celine Sciamma episode. Uh, and uh, I'm yeah, of course, all three of uh, Sarah Polly's films are worth t- talking about and rewatching. So I hope you will all join in on that discussion. Uh, please visit us over at directorsclubpodcast.com and send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And nowadays I'm Jim Laskowski on Letterboxd and Twitter. So find me there. And thanks again, Bill, for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Forever, my darling, my love will be true.
Your command. 